BBC Radio 5 Live. The exciting business of the podcast. Oi, Mark. Somebody did that as I was leaving a festival. Somebody did what? That voice, you know, you're about to do what's up, what's up, right? Yeah. As I was leaving a festival that I was at uh, last weekend. Latitude. Latitude. Yes. I wasn't sure what I was allowed to say. As I was leaving Latitude, where I'd seen Asif Kapadia and um, uh, Richard Iowadi, yeah, yes. and all of it. And I was leaving, and I had, my head was full of a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, as you pull up, there's a number of sort of stops when you have to sort of wave passes and show that you're not... And I pulled up, and I was doing something. And then this somebody who was a security guard went, what's up, what's up, what's up? And it took me about 10 seconds to go, pardon? What? Oh! I see, sorry, it's a sorry. thing. It's, it's a, a meme. Thing. It's a gift. I was, I was really slow off the mark. So, yeah. What's up? Anyway. Yes. Mark. Simon. As that guy said to you at, at Latitude, what is up? Well, we're about to go off on the cruise. I've packed. I've got my suitcase. Oh, I've left it in the I, I haven't got... I, I have to go home after this show. I've got all requests to do. Uh, but I have to go home to get my bag first because I'm not actually quite ready. But you're gonna. But you are coming straight from all requests because that's where the tax well. is going from. No, it is because I've arranged it. I'm going. I'm doing the news twenty four thing. You're doing that, and the taxi is going straight from there to the boat. Okay. Well, no, not to the boat. To the to the little boat. What do you call it? Take us to the big. To take us to the ship. Yes, that's right. So no, the the definition is a boat can go in a ship, but a ship can't go in a boat. That's right, isn't it? The difference between a boat and a ship is that you can put a boat on well, a ship. A boat is smaller than a ship, so therefore that's going to work, yes. Well, if you simplify it like that, but I think the actual I definition is that a boat can go on a ship, but a ship can't go on a okay, boat. Okay, very good. Anyway, yes, we'll be ready to sail, but I don't, we don't sail till four o'clock tomorrow, but we just have a lot of No, but we, 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 we get to know everyone. We, you know, we do the, the mine host thing, you know, get to meet the captain, who I'm yeah. particularly looking forward to meeting. Yeah. And I have a lovely, uh, I have a lovely suite this year, which I'm looking forward to particularly. An entertainment. Where, which program. one are you? Which one are you in? I'm in the Isaac's wing <laughs> this week. I think actually, is that what they're calling? Mm. It? And then we're moving it round. I think it changes, and then you get it in the second week. <clears throat> no, I don't. I'm in the same room all the way through. If somebody else gets your room in the second week, it's not me. It's Robin. I'm in the same room all I'm the way through. I'm not giving up my suite for the, for the puppeteer. He can have his own suite. Well, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what deal you've cut with them, but I'm, I said the thing I want is I want to be in the same room. I don't want that because a couple of years ago when it was like one room a night, it was like, for heaven's sake. But you always want the cabin that's uh, first on the left and by the aisle, you yes, know, which exactly. is slightly problematic given a ship design. And you know that the whole thing about posh being poor out starboard home, apparently it's not true. Of course it's not true. It's a backronym. Is that right? I can't remember now. A backronym, which is when you... When you when you when you when you retrofit an acronym onto a word that already exists, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, we're all looking forward to we're it. We're going to have a very. I mean, obviously, a version of this show continues while we're away, but we just are making a point of sailing around the world. We'll be picking all the listeners up from the ports that they have already asked. You know, we've already got the agenda. We've mm -hmm. got the running order. We're picking up everybody personally and brilliantly, <clears> like <throat> a kind of ocean-bound Uber service. We're picking them up through the Witter app. I mean, it's literally, they'll be able to, you know, your yeah. boat is, will be here in three days. And then we just, that's how we know they're all on board. And it looks as though it's going to be the best ebbs. Well, you know, that's, yes, let's not count our chickens before they're hatched, but I think there are some surprises in store. I'll see you for deck quoits. <laughs> you know, you won't. Monday at six. No, you won't. Why not? 
Because what even is deck coits? It's where you throw coits on a deck. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, because it's, it's, so, it's, oh, I'm on a boat. I must <coughs> throw some. It's coits. Is, the, is it the rings over the? Yeah. Yeah. It's a physical pastime. Yeah, it's like a fairground ride, but done on a boat. Yeah. Fair, you know. Throw, okay, <clears> fine. You'll be surprised. After Why are they few... called coits? I'll have to look that up. I'm afraid, off the top of my head, you don't know. I've got no idea. Anyway, You're rubbish <clears> without <throat> Google. You are. No, it's the online etymology dictionary is what you need. Ask me how my BBC Four series went. I know how it went because I watched it. It was very good. Did you, did you I like don't it? need to ask you because I've seen it. Did you like it? I really, really liked it. What was it, your favourite bit? My favourite bit was when you were looking at the camera and I was thinking, what you need is someone there going, I don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And that would have been my role. Yeah. Many people made that joke on Twitter. So I think that should have that would have been my favourite bit. But I just like all the clips. I mean, I like you as well. I mean, that is the thing. I see a lot of it's you. In the end... All it's a clip show. It's a, it's a, it's it's a clapperboard. It's, a, it's cla- <laughs> For 2018. You're Michael Rod. Or is he with the other one? I can't remember. No, it's Chris um, Cliff... Oh, for heaven's sake. Cliff Mitchellmore. <laughs> Cliff Mitchellmore. Was it him? Anyway. Yeah. But it was very good. Yeah. And because it's a BBC thing, we can talk about it. We can it talk about happily. it. It's absolutely fine. Yeah. <clears throat> and we can promote it. Yeah. So that's right. What's How the did... next one about? Uh, heist movies. Oh, yeah. It said at the end. There's a load of stuff in there about, about um, dead presidents, which I like. And then last night, I was up till, you know, silly o'clock, finishing the voiceover for the horror one. And most of the scripts, right, are like, like 22, 23 pages. And the horror script was like 40 pages because it's just me and Kim Newman just writing more and more. So anyway, it's a bit wordy, the horror one. It's all very good, though. Chris Kelly did clapping. Chris board. Kelly, well Michael done. Rod well did screen test. That's right. <clears> and exactly. that's what you are. An embodiment of both of them. Both of them. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad you... Thank you for watching it. Anyway, here we are, ready to go with with our particular uh, entertaining podcast with... And it's a big ABBA special, so which is always very exciting. It is. And in this podcast, I think we just need to mention Sophie, who works on the show, who has a particular role during the podcast. Do you know... Do you remember in Good Morning Vietnam? Good... Yeah. And I've said, you, passing, you love that film. Adrian Cronau uh, died this week, actually. My, bro- oh, my brother made I a documentary know. about Adrian Cronau, the real Adrian Cronau, played by Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam. And the only problem with the doc, which is a great documentary, there's yeah. no archive recording of Adrian Cronau on the radio. None at all. At all. Absolutely, absolutely none at all. And he ended up as a Republican uh, politician in the States. And did he actually do any of that sort of free fall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 he really did, did do, do he all did that, do that stuff. But I suspect Robin Williams made it sort of slightly. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, funny. Anyway, um, there's there's a scene where Robin Williams is about to do his he's, he's doing all his thing, and there are two army goons who are sitting there as censors, basically, uh, ready to mm. kind of put a line through or yeah. take him off the air. That's what Sophie does, really. She sits there waiting to highlight any birdsongable bits. Could we illustrate her role okay. now by putting something in that needs to be birdsonged? What, like if I said. I can't. I, 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 I was going to say a rude word, and then I can't. No, don't say a rude studio. word, but just say something which Sophie's going to have to birdsong. Okay, so that is a perfect example of, uh, <laughs> of, of the very, very important role that Sophie plays okay. uh, on the show. So yeah. thank you very much. <clears throat> now, here is an email from Ben Sauerbutz, brackets, yes, really. Red badge in swimming and 1989 St Mary's Primary School Fancy Dress Contest winner. St Mary's, <clears throat> St Mary's where? Don't know. Doesn't say. I went to St Mary's Primary School. Dear Top Bants and Top Rants, I believe I may be the first member of the church to be writing to you from the fire service font. 
an appropriate area of the church to station ourselves due to the supply of water. Having been a lonesome long-time listener to the show with no one else to share the ever-growing list of in-jokes and references with, this was of course before you guys decided to monetize the show via your app, helping us to find fellow members of the church while simultaneously lining your own pockets. Imagine my joy when last year I discovered that a friend I had recently made <clears throat> I'll do that again. I discovered that a friend I had recently made... <laughs> will Sophie have to change that, or will you just leave that unedited? I, uh, hopefully Sophie will make that sound intelligent. Okay. Turned out to be a fellow member of the church, both figuratively and literally. Sam, the member of Clergy Corner in Congleton, and general all-round good chap, has finally given me a viable outlet to wass up, greet Jason and Jeremy, and generally debate the art of cinema. Sam and his family have genuinely enriched the lives of me and the good lady her indoors, who, despite being force-fed podcasts for six years, simply refuses to convert. Blimey. Mm -hmm. I now feel doubly lucky that I now get to share in the journey of the prestigious podcast award, thanks to Sam passing on the mantle. Oh, well. OK. Uh, here it is. So please find attached a picture of the Where award. It? Perched neatly on Leak 2... One of the appliances, that's oh, what we it's call... Oh, it's on a fire... It is actually literally on a fire engine. That's what we call the big red trucks at our local fire station. I have added a filter that I like to call the JJ due to okay. the subtle lens flare. Fine. That, I, yes, I, I, it, is, it is absolutely lens flare-tastic. I'm now left with a dilemma. How do you pass on a Listener's Choice Podcast Award? <laughs> well, I, mean, I can hear the whole nation answering yes. their questions. Tiggly Tonk and Dan was saying hello to anyone else uh, with the initials JI. Yours sincerely, Ben Sauerbutz. So That's basically, great. Ben, but Ben hasn't got anyone to pass it on to. Oh no, but 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 he, you just pass it on. I mean, he, he there will be. So he's saying that his problem is he doesn't know anyone who's. Well, the only other person he knows yeah. is is Sam, the member of Clergy Corner in Congleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now what we need, basically, what we need is somebody nearer. There'll be someone who knows yeah. Ben Sauerbutz, who so, listens to this podcast. Yeah, go go up and claim this, and then that's right. Yeah, and 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 what you <coughs> say is, my name is Inega Montoya. You killed my father. Give prepare me the podcast. To, prepare to die. <laughs> that's right. Yes, it's a little that, bit gruesome. That's really, just great. That's really really good. Jason was at Latitude. Of course he was. Yes, I he heard was, about. Honestly, this. it's like the Duracell bunny. He is. He he is like so, there's so much. I, by the time I got there, there was like three texts from him already saying, "Are you here? Are you here? I'm doing stuff." And then it kept saying, "Oh yeah, well, well, we'll try and meet." You know, it's like meeting anybody at a festival. Impossible. And your phone never works properly. No. Uh, uh, yeah, and the rest. And then of you it. leave the festival site. Oh, I got twenty seven. Exactly. All saying, "I'm waiting by the ice cream van by the obelisk stage. Where are you?" But he was. The thing with Jason is he just appears to. He, he never runs out of energy. By day two of a festival, I'm exhausted. I'm just basically, you know, I'm really... T no, not Jason. He's, he's bouncy and he's the thing and he's watching. And we, I we, think it's unnatural. He, I got a text. He said, um, which is the Gallagher brother that sings and which is the one that plays the guitar? Which is the one that sings? Well, they both sing. No, the main one that sings. No, the, they both sing. Okay, and they you both know have bands. I, that they, who's the one who isn't in the High Flying Birds? Liam. Liam. Right. So I get a text from Jason which says, top secret, Liam Gallagher in such and such a tent now. Yes. Okay. Well, Jason's version of top secret seems to be, I suddenly look around and I see the whole world going towards this tent, right? So I think, all right, fine. So I go and I meet Jason and we stand behind a pillar so you can't see the stage. You can literally just see the pillar. And then we listen to some Oasis hits. And Jason is doing this thing. He's singing along and he's doing things. And he keeps looking at me and going, look at you. And at one point, because I'm just... Oh, what did he mean by that? He meant that I wasn't being sufficiently, you know... I mean, I was enjoying it. It was fine. But at one point, I did this, you know, we got to the end of a song. I thought it was quite good. And I 
I went like that. And Jason literally slapped my hands. He went, don't do that. He said, either clap properly or don't. That's ludicrous. That's like authoritarian, know, was classic authoritarian behaviour. Least in my enthusiasm, he literally said that either clap properly or don't. Well, but it, that's all. <laughs> you can clap a little bit if you think it's okay. No, not if you're standing next to Jason. Not if you're standing next to Jason. You, you have, have to. to you, have, you have to. You have to be full on Tigger enthusiasm, or don't even bother. I think that's unnatural. <laughs> I felt thoroughly told off. <laughs> well, <clears throat> okay. Well, that's fair enough. Last time I was, I saw the last act I saw at uh, Latitude was Mika. So oh, really? Yeah. That must I, have been like in the I previous clapped a lot. century. I clapped a lot because he, he was very good. Yeah, and he was, it, it was. It, he for a while he did gigs with just him and a piano, didn't he? Oh, I, I don't remember the detail, but I clapped. I clapped so much that Jason would have approved. Okay, fine. But it, honestly, I haven't been told off for not clapping enough since I was at school. Is he lording it over you still? Do you think? Yeah, I he knows. He, he knows that when when you know that when we were at school, I just thought he was so cool, and you know, so he's, there's a part of his brain that still knows that. He still knows I can, you know, get me some sweets. Um, we have an email here, doctors. Yeah. In last week's show, Mark wondered idly if, when encountering people with unusual names, it would be good to have a less normal name than, say, Mark. As someone who has persevered with a strange name for too long, can I just say an emphatic no? OK. Don't do it. Go ahead. My name is Bender Grosvenor. And while... Uh, Bender spelt B-E-N-D-O-R. Yeah. And while having such an odd name can be useful, if you ever want to say to people, Google me, rather than hand out a business card, which, by the way, I don't do because that would be tragic, <laughs> my advice after 40 years of being called Bender is to re revel in the normalcy of being a Mark or indeed a Simon. That way you can save yourself the bother of having to explain, in my case, that yes, your dad named you after a horse, and no, I don't have any, why, any idea why either. Things have got slightly better since I got a PhD, because somehow Dr Bender Grosvenor sounds like the sort of name an obscure academic ought to have. But then you know all about the advantages of having PhDs. Yeah. Well, some of us do. Thank you. Can I ask a quick question? How, oh, that's not interesting. Always look forward to the podcast. Hands down the best there is from Dr. Bender Grosvenor, who's top art historian off the telly. P.S. He didn't say that, by the way. I, I just you said, said that. As, Is he not right? PhD and top art historian off the telly. P.S. I don't think you do plugs, but my new BBC4 series, blimey, everyone's got one of those, <laughs> Britain's Lost Masterpieces, starts in August. In every programme, I try and sneak in a movie reference, usually with Nail and I, but so far, nobody's noticed them. So if you watch Britain's Lost Masterpieces with Dr. Bender Grosvenor, look out for all the movie references and then get in touch. You know, technically, with Nail and I... Say again. Technically, with Null and I. Anyway, uh, the suggest which, which actually makes a, a nonsense of the name of Richard E. Grant's book, which is called With Nails, but is, is pronounced So with let's Null. not get... No, no, but I'm just saying that's how it's pronounced. Why don't, if you want a new, <clears throat> na a new name, yeah. why don't you call yourself Bendis, Bendor Sourbutts? Yeah, I mean, that's... Bender Sourbutts would be quite fun. But what you. I want <clears> is... For a week, anyway. I want something that... It's your cruise name. No, but what I want is I want something that's got a bit of, um, you know, like I said, the, the, there's a guy, I know somebody called Nimrod. Yes, you mentioned Nimrod. Him. I mean, that sounds really, you know, I want something like that. I want something that, 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 that sounds... Well, why don't you be Dr. Bender Sauerbutz? It's your cruise name. I'll be Peter from Germany and you can be Bender <laughs> All right, fine. And Bender for, the, for the duration of the cruise. cruise. You can have that on your little okay. name tag. Cool. Uh, just one more thing before the show kicks off. Yeah. <laughs> is it going to kick off? Yeah. Are we going to have a... Barney who's 13 years, 10 months and 30 days. Mark and Simon, 
It's around one year since I joined the church. Not sure if this makes me, <coughs> excuse me, an STL, an MTL or an LTL, but now understand most of the in-jokes. I've been attempting to convert my family to your church for quite a long time now to no avail. If you were to give a what's up and celebrate my, uh, just to celebrate my one year anniversary, it would certainly convert them to your church and they would see the benefits of listening to your witterings, uh, but will become bored of Mark's exorcist conversation probably. Well, that comes to most people. Make sure to send some vegan marshmallows down to Adolescence Alcove from me. Uh, hello to Jason. Well, I, was uh, Adolescence Alcove is a very good idea it's and, very it's, good and idea. it's very full, but I didn't know that existed. <clears throat> so it's a very good thing. Definitely so, have it. Can I just say on the subject... Barney, thank you very much indeed, and a was up to your family and time um, they tuned in. On the subject of um, uh, exorcist references, you know we put our videos on YouTube... And we review. When you say we put our videos on, YouTube, you know, when you we mean do the review the show, show. Well, we don't do it. No, magic elves do it. Yes, that's right, and they largely feature you. Yeah, so it's mainly you. Yeah, it's Jamie who works alongside yeah. Sophie. I know, but I'm keeping the magic by suggesting that we do it. Oh, okay. But yes, now fun. you've ruined it. But now, yes, we know that Jamie does it. Yes. Go on then. Okay. Well, what were you going to say? Taking the sparkle you know, out of that. You know Actually, the... no. But Jamie does it rather brilliantly. Anyway, so the, on the on the YouTube thing, sometimes people put comments underneath, and sometimes comments are sensible. But under the you know we did, did first reformed right, and I really liked first reformed. Ethan Hawke, yeah, very good. Yeah, and I really liked it. It was movie of the week, and I said I found it really. Boy, I have forgotten Paul Schrader fans. It just, you know, when people write things and you read it in a particular. <laughs> not enough time to talk about it. And he mentioned the Exorcist. And he, why does he mention the Exorcist? Why does it? Because Paul Schrader directed the Exorcist prequel. There are many times in which I've mentioned the Exorcist when there was no justification. But when somebody actually made an Exorcist movie, don't come complaining to me about Exorcist references being crowbarred in. Get a life, you pathetic twits. Thank you. Apparently, when someone is called Nimrod, it's often used sarcastically to mean a dim-witted or stupid person. Really? Yes. So, apparently Bugs Bunny used to call Elmer Fudd Nimrod. Is, is, who's telling you this in your head? I just, this is just stuff that I have at my fingertips. But are you telling him here in his head? This is well, just... Why does Nimrod mean idiot? Nimrod is a heroic name. Nim Nimrod's a name of the one of the Nim 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 Nim. No, that's a stupid name. Anyway, thank you very much, Mark, for that entertaining interjection. Nice to see you. Just wanted to clear it up. Finally, kicking off about something. Okay, you ready with the show? I am as ready as I'll ever be. What? It's seven minutes past ten. I know. It's just bizarre, isn't it? What are we doing on now? <clears throat> and the weird thing is, have you had this whole thing that when I went to bed last night? I was slightly anxious because I know it sounds like we just make this up as we go along, but it takes a lot of preparation to sound this chaotic. Yes, it does. <laughs> and in order to get to, to do, be doing something now, the prep had to start like, you know, much, much. Uh, you prepare for this? I just made that joke. I know. I just thought I you literally just made I that joke. Need, I thought you needed <laughs> emphasis. OK, fine. <clears throat> so I couldn't. And I was doing a voiceover thing and I didn't finish till quite late. And then there's that thing when you've got a short night and you're terrified that you're going to sleep through the alarm. And if you don't get up at five, you, there won't be enough. There won't be enough time to make all the magic happen. Is that what this is? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I, you know, I did that thing about, you know, waking up at one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, looking at the thing, thinking, you know, anyway. There we go. That's anyway, a this is very show business anecdote. It's, it's eight minutes past ten, so we're talking movies at this point because uh, full golf coverage starts at midday. Of course, there's a so, lot of sport going on this lot, summer. It's called the summer. That's what you know. That's what it is. 
interviewed Mel Brooks yesterday. There is a oh, how was he? 50th anniversary of a uh, special of the producers. Jesus. It's going to be in cinemas for one day. Oh, wow, OK. And when then it's going to go to DVD, it's like August 25th, something okay, like that. And uh, there are... I'm wet there and I'm in pain. Very few 92-year-olds who you would interview live. Yeah. He was amazing. Yeah. He was genuinely fantastic. Very funny, really, really sharp. And like he said, I'm sure he's done this so many times before. The first, I said, Mel, we're, we're very, very excited to have, you, uh, to have you on the show. He said, is there money in this? I said, no. And he kept on asking whether he was going to get paid. And he was just, you know, absolutely fantastic. They had the, the um, was it the Imagine documentary? I think that Alan Yentob did do. Alan sorry. Yentob brought him up. To the, to the studio. Oh, fine. Okay. Well, in that in that case, it was that documentary, and it was really good because he was he was just and he's so so consistently funny, and you know, and very. I interviewed him once, and when it, when he made life life stinks. Remember that? Yeah. Money isn't everything without it. Life stinks, and I started asking him something that was quite boring, and then he re- literally wrenched the microphone out of my hand and just did five minutes of stand up. There is some, went, There we go. There's a fantastic uh, clip of an interview he did in 1975. Uh, with Johnny Carson. So he goes on the Johnny Carson show. I think he's talking about Young Frankenstein. Yeah. And Johnny Carson, the ho- I know these were different times. Yeah. So legendary chat show yeah. host, maybe the most famous chat show host in the history of American yeah. television. He's smoking all the way through. <laughs> now, I know they're different times, but I don't remember in this country a host, the host of a well, show. Dave Allen used smoking. Dave Allen oh, used Dave to Allen smoke did. when he was, and he used to smoke and he had a glass of whiskey by the, didn't he? Am I imagining Is he that? the only one? I mean, I'm, it was obviously a thing, wasn't it? That you Imagine were... Hugh Edwards welcome you to the <laughs> 10 o'clock news. I'll just have number six. Thank you very much. But in that, in that film, um, Death at Broadcasting House, the announcer is literally that there's people walking around with trays of martinis and the announcer's got a cigar. That is pretty much the way we operate. <laughs> exactly. The huge advantage of radio. Problem. Why aren't you dressed, you know, in... Why aren't you dressed? Why aren't I mean, you that's, dressed? That's, that's, that's right, yes. Uh, you can watch, by the way, you can actually tell that we're not smoking or drinking during this show. If you go to the Five Live website, you can watch the webcams because we're back at Westminster. I might have a little slifter in the, in the coffee cup. The great thing about being back at Westminster is there's nobody here. It's like school has broken up today <laughs> and John Pinar is not here and Andrew Neal is not No one is yeah. here. And John Curran is not here. And just before we went on air, your screen broke up. The screen died and Literally went away. just stopped working. Holiday. Sarah in Chester on an email. Uh, dear, uh, oh, it's an ABBA special, by the way. Obviously, it needs to be said because we didn't get time just before uh, okay. ten o'clock because Nikki was talking all about ABBA. Yeah, because Mamma Mia two is out today. And is it? Amanda, I hadn't noticed. Amanda Seyfried and, and uh, Pierce Brosnan will be our special guests after the ten thirty news and sport, mm-hmm. which is very exciting. Dear, it's not without faults and it's not without flaws. This is a reference to last week's show, Sarah and Chester. Last week, I heard you speculating about whether the novelist Harriet Evans may be a listener. This is because in her novel, uh, Wild Flowers, there was a line about yes, tinkety tongue down, 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 down with Nazis. Well, I think the answer is she is. Because in her 2013 novel, Not Without You, on, uh, on page 430, there's a line which says... We'd sit out on the terrace, candles surrounding us, and talk for hours, chatting about the film, about who he'd seen out at the Ivy the previous week, and how he'd said hello to Jason Isaacs. OK, fine, there we go. Proof, if proof there were we needed, go. from Sarah and Chester. That's fantastic. Do you need more proof? Yeah, go on. There's more? About whether Harriet Evans is a listener to the show? Go on. An email from Harriet Evans. No, really? Friday is the day I don't write and hang out with my toddler. It's, it's lovely, but a long day, and I like to relax by listening to you guys live or downloading the podcast as soon as possible. So he said listening to you guys lie. 
and that. <laughs> Last Friday, I also took her on the march against a certain US president and dropped my phone on Regent Street, smashing it to bits whilst trying to take a photo of my favourite sign, which was, I'm a vegan, but I've stopped eating, but I've stopped eating beans because they make me Trump. There you go. <laughs> Then the toddler kicked off about being on the bus and shouted, help me, all the way home. Then I got stuck on the tall, twirly-whirly slide, trying to persuade her that she's too small to go down the tall, twirly-whirly slide. Then my other daughter smashed her piggy bank and couldn't find her shoes and took all the sand out of the sandpit in the local park. Standard Friday, you might think. I was in need of a stiff drink. Anyway... When I finally got my phone back from the phone shop, I turned it on to find WhatsApp messages or WhatsApp messages. We ought to start our own messages. Why how come we haven't thought of that before? WhatsApp messages. I can't believe that we've it's taken us this long we, to do that. We could have this that is, would be brilliant. We need our own messaging service, which is only open to, only open <laughs> to, to people who listen to the show. <laughs> this is very good. Could someone sort that out? Can you sort that out? Jamie can sort it out. Jamie's technical. Tell Jamie to do it. Anyway, doing the videos. Anyway, we continue okay. with this from Harriet Evans. I turned on to find WhatsApp messages, texts, emails, tweets from random strangers telling me that my uh, Witter ref had made it onto the show and that you weren't quite sure if it was deliberate on my part or merely coincidental dialogue in an excellently written, multi-generational and best-selling <laughs> best saga of family that is happily still available in all good bookshops. Although not my local Waterstones, because Islington is too posh for the likes of me. But maybe don't read that bit out. Okay. I've written ten novels, and this is the third Witter ref I've inserted. The first is the Jason Isaacs reference, which I think we just yeah. heard. Still out there in one novel. I'm amazed it made it through the copy edit, as it makes no sense in the story at that point. My second attempt, having two otherwise intelligent men argue about whether a word is pronounced dilemma or dilemma, was cut for reasons of massive implausibility. <laughs> As you know, writing is a brilliant job, but it can get a bit lonely, to say the least. So this was my way of saying thanks for the company. If you need me, I'll be in the writer's retreat corner of the church, which will have to be in the vicarage, as we writers need access to comfy beds for afternoon naps and decent tea and coffee-making facilities. Anyway, so Harriet, thank you very much indeed. I'm going to, before we, before we go on the cruise, yeah, uh, which we're going to do this weekend, I'm going to buy all of her books. Yes, and then we read them all on the cruise. Yeah. And we're going to highlight all. Can of we them. get a trolley? You know, like you know the books Drinks trolley. Trolleys. No, no, a books trolley. You know, like people used to like in prisons when somebody they take around a books trolley, but it's literally just her books. So that's we walk up, go around. Okay. The, that's it. And that's think, all you can read. I think that's fair enough. Um, box office top ten yes. at thirty eight. Pincushion, which I really liked. I thought it was a very strong uh, film about bullying. There are some really, really sort of painful moments in it, and later on it kind of turns into a horror movie. But at the beginning, it has a sort of fairy tale quality to it and I thought it was very powerful um, Paul Matthews I know it's not in the top 10 I'd like to give a shout out to Pincushion saw it last weekend I think it may be the best film I've seen so far this year well wow. Joanna Scanlon's performance is astonishing they've been shaken and still thinking about and it and Lily Newmark's terrific Days as well later. Uh, Lee Davis went to see Pincushion at the Midland Arts Centre in Birmingham part of the Reclaim the Frame project promoting films by female directors I went with my friend Andy, who was viewing his hometown of Swanlicott on the big screen. He did point out that it isn't actually as bad as depicted, but then the film has an almost Lynchian suspicion about small towns being not so much home as places of entrapment. Uh -huh. With Lily Newmark suitably otherworldly in her deer-in-the-headlights role. Guys, I, 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 I <clears throat> met and interviewed Lily Newmark as well last week, and she is really sharp. I mean, really, really fun. At one point I said... Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the film from the perspective of a you know 55 year old man. And I'm asking, you know, what do I know? And she went, Yeah, what do you know? I went, okay, fine, good point. Well, that's not very nice. <laughs> no, it was in a bit. It was in a funny way. 
I, 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 well, I didn't do it. It was Sounds funny at the time. No, it was very funny and respectful. Was it? You were, I, I'm just not doing the I joke. I think there's a hidden agenda there. All right, moving on. Uh, in the top ten at <clears> 13, for, well, so not in the ten. Yeah. Uh, first Reformed. Which I really like. It's Paul Schrader's best movie since Autofocus. Paul Schrader, as we've noted it's earlier on in the podcast, directed the prequel to The Exorcist, so perfectly legitimate to bring it up when talking about the you film. You can't say earlier on in the podcast <clears throat> when we're live on the radio. OK. Um, Ethan Hawke, very good performance. Uh, Amanda Seyfried in, in a role which is the uh, the other end of the spectrum to uh, Mamma yes. Mia, Here We Go Again. And I imagine that you may bring that up in the I think interview I probably that you do will. with her. But it's, yeah, I think it's very powerful. It looks like... Um, you know, Dreyer or Pavel Pavlikovsky. And as I said, I think it's his best work since Autofocus and it takes us back to the God's Lonely Man themes of Taxi Driver. And in the strange time zone that we're in, that thing that Mark's just referenced, you can hear later when the podcast becomes available, where he shouts yeah. a lot. When the podcast becomes available before the time that we would normally even be on air. That's right. Uh, Nico would like to add in saying... Um, it's so refreshing to see a film that doesn't patronise you in an era where we're being spoon-fed so much. Um... First Reformed makes you lean in and listen. And the more you listen, That's a the phrase. more you're rewarded. So many long silences and long takes creates a realistic and intriguing world, like you are overhearing a conversation in the next room. You lean in and listen. It forces the audience to take part to an extent. Ethan Hawke was remarkable. And I've never seen him take on another character to be less like himself in a part before. The closely framed shots that Paul Schrader seems to love means there's no escape for an actor. They have to be sincere. You can see every flicker of an eyelid. There wasn't an inch of the film that I didn't trust. Uh, anyway. That's, again, a lovely <laughs> phrase. Isn't it? Not an inch of the film I didn't trust. That's, that's absolutely right. So you can hear the other version of Amanda Seyfried um, very shortly. In the singy-dancy version. The singy-dancy version, along with singy-dancy Pierce. And, yeah, exactly. Well, less singy-dancy Pierce. The Reverend Jason Nike, or possibly just Nike. Mm -hmm. What do you think? If you, if you had Nike as a setting, would you go for Nike just to be cool and cred? Yeah, I think he's probably the Rev Nike. Greetings from Clergy Corner. As a church minister looking to de-stress after a challenging week, what do I do on my afternoon off? That's right, I take myself to see First Reformed. Oh, good choice. <laughs> a fantastically <laughs> astute film about a church minister having something of a breakdown. What an impressive film, from its 4-3 ratio to its use of light or lack thereof to a career... He sounds like your kind of minister. He does. A career-defining performance from Hawke and its honest portrayal of faith and failure. I was transfixed from beginning to end, though end might be too strong a word. <laughs> Wise words, Jason. <laughs> Most weeks before I preach at my own church... Did you feel the same thing? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I didn't, but there we go. Most weeks before I preach at my own church, I pray that people listening, I hope there are some, will be... Encouraged, challenged and changed. Watching First Reformed, I was indeed encouraged, challenged and changed. I'm fortunate enough to live near enough to one of the few cinemas that is screening this gem and despite being a sleepy Tuesday afternoon, the cinema was fairly full. What an injustice that the multiplexes can't schedule at least a daily screening enabling more people to catch this. My local world of Sydney has no less than 17 showings of Incredibles 2 today. I look forward to enjoying the preach-along version of First Reform <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get a wider <laughs> that, release. That is a brilliant idea. <laughs> that would be... That would be something. That else. really would be something. Uh, we're not in the. Oh yes, here we are. Now we're finally in the top ten. It's a drift at number ten. That's doing okay. That's staying yeah, around. Yeah, I liked it? it. And uh, as I said before, it reminded me somewhat of Wild. And I, you know, I thought that the the, the the scene of the wreck was as effective as that scene in Ridley Ridley Scott's White Squall from all those years ago. Uh, Sanju is at number eight. Are you skipping over Hereditary? Are you? Oh, Hereditary is at number nine. Yeah, it, it's not this generation's The Exorcist. Sanju at number eight. I haven't seen it. 
A Sicario 2 Soldado. I have seen it, seven. and it's nothing like as good as the original. Um, it, it has a sort of gritty charm. It has that that very uh, sort of shadowy colour palette, and there are some good performances and some well-mounted set pieces, but it doesn't have that that kind of magical edge that the original had, which was to do with Denis Villeneuve, and I think it was also to do with, with Emily Blunt. I really did miss Emily Blunt's character a lot. The Secret of Marabone is at number it's, six. It's such a strange film, and it's something... When I went and see it, I knew nothing at all apart from the cast and, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the title... And it's a film which sort of skirts around the edges of ghostly horror. They're a family who are obviously on the run. There is a secret in their past. There's something in the attic. And it's got a you know great sense of performance by, by George Mackay. I actually thought it was it was oddly impressive. I thought it it told its story. It's it's a it's a very strange story, and I thought it told it well. It, what it, is the secret of Marabone? Well, the, they, that's the name that they take on because they're they're on the run from their past. And at the very, very beginning, they move into this new house and the mother draws a line. She says, we step over that line and everything before is gone and now we're in a new... And so the secret is the past coming back to haunt them. Do you know, before this email from uh, Dave, um, I would like to ask you whether you are... Because this needs to be explained, if yeah. not. The concept of Chekhov's gun. No. OK, <clears throat> so you'll need to know this information before I read this email. Okay. Chekhov's gun... Did you a... know this? No, 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 no. It's a dramatic principle okay. that... Stays... Oh, if you put a gun under the table, then somebody's going to use it. Every element in a story must be necessary, and irrelevant elements should be removed. Right, yeah. Okay? Yeah, so if there's a gun... Yeah, fine, yeah. But that's, that's a version of, of, of Hitchcock's tension. That... Yeah, OK, fine, fine. OK. So... Dear him in the attic and him in the field. Marabone, finally a horror really worth shouting about. I've struggled to love horror movies this year. Granted, A Quiet Place and Unsane lent something new to the genre, but Marabone takes everything back to what we know and love. A good old-fashioned haunted house with a difference. What I love about Marabone is how uneasy I constantly felt throughout. Certain elements, like the lemonade and the Morse code touches, felt mm -hmm. like Chekhov's guns. There okay. you go. Fine. And I was preempting scenes, using them to move the story along, but they didn't get pushed on us. It's things like this that just took me as a movie, go out of my comfort zone, which is exactly what a good horror needs to do. George Mackay is fantastic, as are all the members of the family. I absolutely didn't see the ending coming at all, and the storytelling uh, used to bring it all together was really well done and kept me gripped. But the interesting <laughs> thing about the ending, and this isn't to give something away, it's the thing about the ending is, although you may not see it coming, when it happens, you go... Okay, all right. That's that's okay. I I actually but because there's a thing when a movie when a movie does something and you go oh for heaven's sake it's like a Bobby Ewing walks out of the shower and it's like no that's not and then there's a thing when a movie does something and you go oh okay because you kind of did know even if you think you didn't see it coming you kind of did. Ocean's Eight's at five. I thought it was fun. I mean, I I thought it was much more fun than a lot of other critics thought. It seems to have done well at the box office. I do think that James Gordon is badly cast, but not his fault. Um, I thought it was yeah, finger popping fun. First Purge at four. It's 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 a strange thing with the Purge, isn't it? That it has become this sort of touchstone modern political horror series, and although the the, the first Purge, it it's not without flaws. I like uh -huh. the idea. Yeah, I like the idea that what they've done is they've made a prequel, which is, you know, very, very overtly political about the fact that the whole that the purge is set up as a kind of a form of ethnic cleansing. That it's absolutely politically motivated. It's to do with, you know, getting the poor to turn on each other. It's about white supremacists. It's about all of those things, and it's all those things wrapped up in a package of a, you know, a sort of a B movie style horror movie. The only thing I would say is it's a fifteen certificate film, and it's a it's it's fairly tough fifteen. Uh. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm just resorting to paper now. Why? There we go, because the screen's died again. Because the screen died again. It has, yeah. Uh, first purge is at 15. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. We've kind of done that. Yes, I think we have, and, and, and everyone knows that, that there is stuff in the trailer that is barely in the film. It is literally, and stop doing that. That's just trying really to make it come to life again. Hitting it isn't going to, have you tried turning it off and turning it on again? What I need, what I need is a young Frankenstein kind of uh, electric. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And spark it back to life. I'll go and stand on the top of the building and wait for a lightning storm. Skyscraper is at number two. Well, so there was a lot of conversation about whether or not die hard in a building. Because we were saying, what is that in a building? Somebody, apparently it's a thing. The phrase in a building is a thing. What, and do, you, what do you mean it's a thing? It's a thing. It's a knowing thing. To say it's die hard in a building as opposed to die hard in a plane or die hard but on it, a boat. But die hard was in a I, building. I know, I know. But when, but when I'm just reporting what it says on the internet Twitter thing, that apparently when you and I were going, but die hard is in a building, the, uh, the whole nation was going, yeah, we know that's the point. It's a thing. I'm only but saying, I don't, what does it, it's a thing mean? Because it's die hard on a boat and die hard on a plane, whereas die hard is die hard in a building. Die hard so is in a building. Yeah, I, Why were people saying that? Okay, so to everyone <clears> listening, <throat> I have attempted to get up to speed. He's not having any of it. But then again, well, his screen has just broken down. Again, James Boothman, uh, I left a recent skyscraper uh, screening feeling as though I'd been... I left a recent skyscraper. Beaten about the head with a baseball bat made yeah. entirely from mediocrity. Um, the sense that's of, not fair. The sense of humour that Dwayne Johnson usually shows was almost completely lacking for me as he kept doing his serious face before attempting something manly. Without a remotely interesting supporting cast other than Noah Taylor perfecting the art of gurning and some <laughs> wholly unsurprising action sequences, I'm struggling to think of the last time I saw a film that demonstrated the proper use of the term meh quite as effectively as this. Oh, I enjoyed it. Ian Willis on Sunday went to see Skyscraper, a film about... A smouldering, imposing superstructure standing on the Hong Kong skyline. Very good. And, and the then the skyscraper. I didn't know if it was supposed to be a comedy, but it certainly passed the six. It was. It's directed me. by the guy who made Dodgeball. So he does, I mean, although it's an action film, he does have a very good sense of humour. Stephen Taylor, I've been surprised at the lack of coverage of a ubiquitous action movie trope referred to in our family as the dangle. That's where our hero or an associate falls from a window ledge, a cliff edge, an earthquake fissure. Yeah. Proceeds to dangle by their fingertips yeah. above a sheer drop for a suitably dramatic amount of time, <coughs> excuse me, before hauling themselves up or being rescued by an ally or foe. I'm not saying this is a bad thing in itself. There's some great movie dangles. Um, uh, for example, Deckard's at the end of Blade Runner before yeah. being hoisted up by That's Batty and Tom Cruise's climbing sequence at the start of Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. But sometimes it goes too far. You almost wonder if there's a special dangle clause written into movie contracts, which brings me to Skyscraper. We prepared specially, storing, stowing our brains secretly and securely before leaving home and turning our expectation dials down to zero. For that reason, I kind of enjoyed it, despite the contrived ludicrous plot but so many dangles yeah. so, many so many dangles, dangles. yeah but it's skyscraper rock got them in early with his ascent up the crane followed by uh, a major dangle off a window ledge his wife got a dangle in as well impressive from a plank later with her son hanging onto her back an impressive double dangle <laughs> a water <laughs> top dangle though is a scene where rock holds on to his vertic his artificial leg which is in turn dangling from a rope tied onto a piece of sculpture wedged against a broken window yeah. 10 out of 10 for originality Needless to say, the bad guys don't get dangled, <laughs> which, which is which is worth putting on a T-shirt. As is usually the case, they go straight all the way down. Uh, anyway, uh, Stephen Taylor, thank you very much. And if by any chance you give a shout-out to Sun... Um, 
uh, yes, who's uh, my son, who's uh, moved to Dunedin in New Zealand on a university exchange for a year. He's a big fan, and uh, it would soften the homesickness. It's a long way from Shrewsbury. And I think it's Sun version 1.20. Okay. Anyway. Can I just say something very quickly about the dangle thing? And this, it, it, it was always, if you if you run and jump, okay, and then hit something and dang, it, it's not physically possible to to to. If you're falling, you can't stop the fall by 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 grabbing something with your fingertips. You it wouldn't work, okay. And it happens in every movie. It happens in the, the new Mission Impossible. We see the thing when Tom Cruise injured himself. You know, you jump from one building to another, and you hit. And very similar in skyscraper, you jump from a thing, from a thing, and you hit it, and you, you hang on with your fingers. It's not. It's against the laws of all. Unless yes. anybody knows differently. I'm just assuming that we all know that that is utterly impossible. It is not possible to, as if you're falling, it is not possible to stop yourself falling by grabbing something that's going past you at the speed of gravity, whatever. What's the, what's the acceleration of gravity? Whatever it's it is, one point eight meters per, per second. second per second, right? Yeah. Fine. So it's n- it, as soon as you're moving, you can't do it. The only way you could do it is if you were stationary and not falling at the, at the beginning, unless you're Bugs Bunny. Yeah, in which case you can walk off the edge of a yeah. cliff and you don't fall until you realise. So Incredibles 2, I'm just going to go here. <clears throat> yeah, Laura T, age 16. I adored Incredibles 2. Despite only being two when the first one came out, it was definitely part of my childy consciousness. Oh, Leave the saving of the world to the men? I don't think so. It was probably my feminist awakening. <laughs> the screening... A local Odeon at 11.30 was entirely made up of teenagers and young adults, which created a nostalgic camaraderie. I haven't felt such a buzz exiting a film in years. Special mention, given that almost every other aspect of the film has had a special mention, to the music, which very much maintained the feeling of the first film, which maintains the feeling and sound of the 70s and 80s. And it's, and it's also, it's got that kind of, that James Bond inflection going on. Because there's one moment in it in which the theme nearly turns into the Monty Norman theme, doesn't it? That is true. Charlotte, on this email, um, I'm 15. Too young to see the original Incredibles in cinema when it first came out. Uh, However, on some occasions, I've watched the first film on a loop, so I consider myself a huge fan. I went to see Incredibles 2 with my parents and younger sister at the first screening we could in our local cinema. I have to say, I think Incredibles 2 is better than the original. Good. Funnier than the first one. Mr. Incredibles' pain from the maths... Uh, changing Jack-Jack's powers emerging, yeah. really allowing the audience to erupt in laughter. It's messages of the dangers of technology and screens, should unjust laws be broken and women taking control, resonated with the audience. The animation and the graphics were absolutely amazing. It was bright, colourful and crystal clear. At some points of the film, it looked uh, it looked real, particularly in the action sequences. At a couple of points, I thought it was quite scary. But if this does get read out, please got to have a huge what's up to my dad, Rob, who introduced me to your wittering and is a huge fan of the And show. also, there is a brilliant, we did we talk about this, there's a brilliant supporting feature, Bow. Did you see that? I did. Yeah, well, it's absolutely welded yeah, in there. I mean, it's, it's, and it's really remarkable. And there is a moment in, in Bow in which I lit, I went, <gasps> what? Because it's, there is, you know, there is a moment of real surprise before the sentiment. It's also worth saying that Child 2 who have been giving me a hard time about, oh, Dad, you never liked The Incredibles, you missed it, you didn't, you know, you got it wrong. What's the, what's the new one like? I said, the new one is funnier, it's better, it's like, like the thing with, you know, more minions in Despicable Me, and then he was rolling his eyes, because apparently the fact that his dad likes minions is really embarrassing. And um, anyway, then he went to the cinema and he saw it, and he came back and he said it was brilliant. It was, so I, I was right. 
Hey, well, that's very. I know. Good. Although a, you were wrong about the first one, yes, you yes, were yes, right yes. Although, although I have admitted that I was wrong yes. about the first one, I've, I think I've you know I've done many mere culpas about it. And that's the box office top ten, and uh, it's about there's about to be an ABBA takeover because Mamma Mia, here we go again, uh, is out today. In case you hadn't noticed, so it's ten thirty six. Mark's still typing something. What are you typing? You like emails and uh, I would like to ordering resign some from wine. this job because of the early start time and a bottle of cider. Thank you very much. <laughs> a bottle of cider. Hey, look, Mamma Mia is uh, is back around. Fantastic hour of calls with uh, with Nicky earlier. Lots of lots of people looking forward you hear what he so just said? much to this weekend. Who? He just Robin just said in my headphones. Good news, your resignation has been accepted. <laughs> okay, then. that's that's you know producers. You understand that the role is to editors is to encourage and you know and and generally pamper and all the rest of it. Nicola was at Latitude as well. He's in the room there. He was anyway. At so on anyway, we go with on. Abba and Mamma Mia. Okay. Oh yes, is that out this <clears> week? It is. So you'll hear, I hadn't noticed. You'll hear Mark's uh, review uh, in just a moment. <clears throat> so we're going to do our chat with uh, Amanda Seyfried and Pierce Brosnan. You should know, just because it sort of affects the start, the, the opening of this interview, that while we were, they're about... Were you in fancy dress? <laughs> no. Is that what you're No, no, no. Okay. no. There'd been a lot of fuss and bother, a lot of delays, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and Amanda Seyfried had been um, showing some family videos and stuff to to, to friends and Pierce and yeah. stuff. Okay, so the, so that explains the kind of fuss and bother at the beginning. Yeah, okay. I'm just putting it in some kind of context. Okay. okay. So we're going to play you a clip, first of all, bother. from... Yeah, fuss and bother. Uh, from Mamma Mia, here we go again. This clip features Amanda Seyfried, Stellan Skarsgård, Colin Firth, Andy Garcia, Dominic Cooper, pretty much everyone, everyone. in fact, except Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> They're not all millionaires. I don't care. And there's no press, there won't be any coverage of the evening. I, I don't care. And I could only book the worst band in the world. <laughs> They're a great band, and I don't care about any of it you got here. And I'm never leaving again. I don't care about the job or New York or anything. I don't care about anything that isn't you. Senor Cienfuegos, uh, the party is still happening. We'll look after the fireworks. Sky's here, and these are my other two dads. Of course, it takes three great men to create such a woman. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be of service. <laughs> God, Sophie, look what you've done with the place. She wanted to make her mum proud. As if she hasn't done that all her life. OK, and that's a clip from Mamma Mia. Here we go again. I'm delighted to say Pierce Brosnan and Amanda Seyfried are here drinking coffee. How are you? <laughs> well, very good, Simon. Good day. <laughs> very nice to see you, Pierce. Very nice to see you, Amanda. Are you happy with the coffee? I'm really happy with it, yeah. Yes, OK. Can we get you anything else, Pierce? My okay. spaghetti bolognese, I'd like that. A spaghetti Spag. bolognese. Spag bog. Have bog. some spag bog, love. Here you go. Not a spag bog. Didn't know about that. Did you not know about spaggy bog? No, but spaggy I bog. really would also <laughs> care for some spaggy bob as well. If, <laughs> spaggy bob. Okay, well, if Pierce makes it, then maybe that's... Oh, right. Anyway, let's... T- <laughs> let, I just want to talk about your film, if that's all right. Because my general belief as I was walking down to do this interview is this movie has come at exactly the right time. Because yes. if your view of the world is that it's all a little bit stressful at the moment, then Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again has arrived just for you. The doctors should be able to prescribe this film. You Good. should go, go and see it on prescription. Oh, Thank what do you, you. say? What a wonderful thing to say. Simon. Yeah. Okay. Just some distraction, a little bit of ABBA, some spandex, some Pierce dancing. I do think it's entered the stage at a very good time in life because it is so miserable out there with the politics that's happening in America and the country and the leaders all around the world too. It's just crazy what they're doing to our earth. But uh, Mamma Mia 2 was a delight to make. I mean, it was just such a wonderful reunion after 10 years of being apart from each other. Because you said about yeah. the first you said about the first film, Pierce, it was criminal how much fun we had. Mm-hmm. So does that hold for the second one as well? 
Yeah, I think so. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. We're on the island of Viz. Oh, Croatia. Are you kidding? It's like we, we went and did some rehearsals separately in London, <coughs> and then we all reunited in Croatia, which doesn't happen very often in life. No, that's right. <laughs> in work. So the island is, is Viz in, crea- in, in, in Croatia. In Croatia, yeah. It was a tiny island, and they really just embraced us and led us onto the island and led us into their homes. Uh, my wife, Keely, and I had a little apartment right there on the seafront, and all the kids had come by and say hello to James Bond. I'd had my own little <laughs> glee party of kids out there. And, uh, oh, my God, and the film was was right on our doorstep. Yeah, so, and, you know, just this remarkable, enthusiastic cast of players. So the film is, is, is like a wraparound, really. It's, it's a prequel and a sequel all happening at the same time. Amanda, just explain where, this, where the story is and where you take us in, uh, in this Well, story. Sophie and Sam live on the island now. We've had um, quite a year, and we're trying to renovate the Villa Donna and reopen it, have this grand reopening um, and all these people from all around the world are coming, the dads and my friends, and, and um, it starts out there, and and I'm pregnant, and it's we're in a different stage in our lives, both of us, really, and, and then, yeah, you, you kind of go back and get some context, how Donna and Sam fell in love, and we keep cutting back to the present. It's really clever, actually. Mm, I thought they did a magnificent job on uh, bringing all these storylines together, prequel, sequel. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it grabs you. It's a very emotional film, actually. It's emotional on very many levels. For me as an actor within it, watching Amanda grow up as a young woman, become a mother in those 10 years, having worked with her 10 years ago when she was a young lass, and now here she is a young lass still, but a mother. And all of the actors that you know have got different stories. And we became a company 10 years ago. And so there's a real lovely support system, I feel. There was such a connection made. And, you know, I, I feel like I relate to everybody so much differently now because I'm a little bit closer to them. There was such a difference in age back mm. when I was 21. And now I feel like I can relate differently to everybody. And the bonds just got deeper. There's a lot more depth in this story, too. And, we, you know, we get to know people mm. better than we did the first time around as characters. And... And you can feel how much we love each other in in real life in the movie. Was it always a sequel that was going to happen? I mean, the, the, the first movie was so huge. At one stage, it was the highest grossing film in UK cinema history. Mm. The critics weren't interested. But as far as the public <laughs> were concerned, yes. they absolutely matters, loved it. Yes. So it was just a question, presumably, of logistics, of getting everybody back together. I think it was a story, too. How do you tell the story? Yeah, it didn't make sense to me. It didn't. Everybody would ask over the years, and I'd be like, I don't think so. Mm. But then mm. all came up with something kind of amazing. But it was Richard Curtis, actually. It was Richard Curtis's daughter. Oh, his daughter. daughter. Oh, Scarlett was like, was what about this? Why don't we go back in time? Yeah. And cut two and two together. And then Richard and all took that. And we were right. like, you're a genius. He's yeah. Old Parker, who's the director. And old yes. Parker, yeah. yeah. And then Richard and all kind of went away for a week or so. Yep. Up in the country, That's and came right. back with that. That's it. That was it. I was. It was. Scarlett it was, Curtis. Yeah, yeah, Scarlett Curtis. She said, "Why don't you do a Godfather too?" No, oh, that really was it. That was, that was her quote to her dad driving in the car to work one day, and so it sprang out of that idea. Flashback, flashback. 
Because with the title, here we go again. It was just, it was made. It was waiting to happen. Wasn't it was waiting for a story uh, to come in there. Absolutely. Just back on the first film, was there a moment where it dawned on you that it was going to be huge? What, I mean, or were you just having a ball, thinking, who knows what's going to happen to this? Because you know, Greatest Showman came out. The critics hated it. Um, the audience absolutely love it, and it's been you know one of the highest grossing films of the year. And is the same? It was the same kind of thing for Mamma Mia. I love Greatest Showman. I thought it was a wonderful film. Uh, I love Hugh Jackman and anything he does. He's fantastic. I don't think any of us thought the first time round that it was going to go through the stratosphere the way it did. Uh, I think Judy Kramer was as surprised as we all were. She was the producer. Yes. Yeah. I mean it, I mean the show ran on, on on in the West End for so many years. And I remember the night I saw it it was packed to the rafters. And packed to the rafters with people who you know just didn't go to the theatre. They travelled from, you know, the North Country yeah. and Scotland down to London was to it, see Mamma Mia. Was it any less nerve wracking to do the singing and the dancing? I'm looking at Pierce particularly. Thank you. In the second one? Yeah, yeah, second yeah. second time round. Terrifying singing. <laughs> this beautiful woman here sings like an angel and has such a gorgeous voice but and luckily, does it with such effortless we, ease. Thank you. We get to do it in the studio, which is so much less in- intimidating because mm-hmm. then they can kind of help us out mm-hmm. if we need it. Like I, I'm sure I was a bit pitchy and I needed some help. So you that's, were a bit pitchy. I think I had some uh, some flats and some sharps, and I think I don't in the movie because they fixed it in the studio. I could never tell myself, really. Really? Whether I was flat, <laughs> sharp, or anything. I was just <laughs> sinking it all. I remember doing Dancing Queen. I didn't really learn the lines. <laughs> I just thought we're doing Dancing Queen because we'd been doing it for weeks and weeks, and then we came to a particular moment when you and I are together, and suddenly I started getting notes. Um, I don't think you're saying the correct lines here. Oh my God, we didn't even learn the song. Didn't, it's like you no. think you know it, but yes. you don't. Except Martin kept coming up to me too. Yeah. <laughs> Dancing queen. That's beautiful. It is. That's, that's, that's my lovely. singing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great, and I think it works. And it, it, Pierce, in this movie, we get Jeremy Irving playing the younger you. Yes. What was that? What was that like seeing somebody that never happened to you before? Seeing someone who's supposed to be you, but like 25, 30 years ago. Well, I didn't really get to work with Jeremy because my scenes were with Amanda. Uh, but Jeremy and I met at the beginning of the show down at Shepherd and Studios. We sat in the dressing room and had cups of tea and biscuits and talked stories about being an actor and just hung out and talked about doing the movie 10 years prior and all the fears and joys of doing it and singing and dancing. And it was very easy. He was an easy guy to get on with. Yeah. And they all were. You know, impeccable young performers. Did he do a good version of The Younger You? He did a great version of me, I thought. I thought he was great. He uh, he, he did, does a good impersonation of me. I mean, he doesn't do it in the movie, but I think he got a few of the shadow moves here and there. <laughs> is that right? Because this is about the time you were doing kind of Long Good Friday and Professionals. That kind of Would that be right? I was just trying to work out his age and what the age that oh, you were at that time. Yes, kind of I think it, Long, Good Friday, Long Good Friday was my first film. Yes, first time on film. So it would have been around that same time, age-wise. He was a good-looking lad. Uh, he's a good-looking lad. So he is indeed. Do you, do you think... You've got the Irish coming out there. Oh. <laughs> he's got Irish coming out of everywhere. Oh, it really? depends on the moment. I love it. And yes. Does. yes. Is, this anyway. movie, is this movie, and this is for people who haven't seen it, I've seen it and had an absolute blast. Is this... Could you say this is as flamboyant, more flamboyant, on the flamboyant stakes? Where is Mamma Mia? Here we go again. 
its moments. It, it has its moments of, of grandeur and of outrageous flair. But above all else, it has a real heart. Yeah. You have, I mean, Amanda, you do carry this. You are the heart of this movie. You really do. Everything springs from your, your heartbeat and your soul, as Sophie. So it's glorious to see what you've done, Thanks. how you've grown up. And I gotta you... say, I, I, t- I think I would have come at it just a tiny bit differently if I didn't have a daughter myself, a really, or a mm. child myself. It's True. really important in that, in that mother-daughter relationship that is the heart of this movie, it kind of... Yes, well at the end too, movie. when you come in to the church and, you know, that's a crusher of gorgeousness and emotion. And you think it changed the way you you played the role? Yeah, I think so. I think it ha- I mean, I, there's a, a lot, yeah. I, I related to it differently, yeah. for sure. I was delighted to to see this movie and to do this uh, this interview because Ethan Hawke was on the show oh, and yeah. we talked about First Reformed. And I have to say, in terms of a mood at the end of First Reformed, when you walk out of First Reformed and a mood when you come out of Mamma Mia 2, it is not possible to think of movies that are further apart. I know. But a fantastic film. and, and, so and what, good. And, you know, an amazing film which everybody needs to see. And Ethan Hawke, a great leading man. He really is his best Paul Schrader and Ethan Hawke are the perfect duo. I mean, they created something insane and such a good conversation piece, you know. Yeah. So there's a couple of Amanda Seyfried movies that you can see, and you could do an Amanda Seyfried double bill. But I would say first Reformed first, and then go and see Mamma Mia. Here we go Yeah, again. you need a little bit of a, a drink afterwards. Yes, that's right. Yes, you do. And this is do. a real tall drink of fizzy mm. what is it? That, what is it that he's drinking in that final scene? Anyway, we don't I need just to do a little uh, death. Uh, Pierce, what do, we, what do we see you in next? That's a good question. Martin Campbell and I are going to go off and make a movie in Venice here in August. Uh, it's an Ernest Hemingway story called Across the River into the Trees. We, in Venice, Italy. In Venice, Italy, yes. So it's a, it's a yes, Hemingway Italy. story. He wrote the book about 10 years after For Whom the Bell Tolls, and he took a lot of criticism for it. It's about an aging colonel who's dying. And so we're going to do that. Okay. Uh, it's similar to Mamma Mia. Mm. It does. <laughs> no singing. <laughs> what do we see you in next, That's Amanda? That's amazing. I just finished The Art of Racing in the Rain, which is a book from the perspective of a dog that was really big when it came out about 10 years ago. Um, I just wrapped it, and I think it's really good. And then I'm going to be in Europe as well at the same time, probably, mm-hmm. in London doing um You should hook up thriller. for some s- spag bowl. Well, okay. I'm definitely, I told Colin I was going to definitely be back here, and Simon Curtis who directed me just now, is going to be here. And I'm working with Kevin Bacon, so we're all going to be together. Hey. Spag so Bob and you Kevin Bacon. from Venice, nice. we'll have some Spag Bob. Spag Bob it is, then. All right, there you go, folks. Uh, Pearson, Amanda, thank you so much. <laughs> Love what you. a horrible name for something. Spaghetti Bolognese, folks. I know. But Spag Bob, to us who love Spag Bob. Pearson, Amanda, thank you so much. See you, mate. Thanks. <laughs> See you, mate. That was a hoot. That was. So there's Pierce Brosnan and Amanda. And Amanda Seyfried. I, they didn't get the spaghetti bolognese and Kevin Bacon. They get the no. spaghetti and bacon. I know. I they, know. They are, you know that's solid goals before spine. I know. But and then again, <clears> there's <throat> also the moment about Venice, Italy. No, Venice. Yeah, where do you think? Which, which Venice, Venice are you Venice Beach, you know. Could be Venice Beach. <laughs> Alison in Hitchin. <clears throat> it's my daughter's 22nd birthday today, so what do we do? Well, me aged 54, Gaia 22, and my mum 79 are off to the lunchtime screening of Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. And this is what film does. It brings generations together. Thank you for the music, Alison and Hitchin. However, <laughs> what is Mark going to make of it? He might really, really dislike it. He might savage it. He might tear it apart. Well, you, you know, because you and I have had this conversation, 
I, I went back and looked at that, the, the original review that I did of Mamma Mia, and it is true that it is, it, the, watching that first film was one of the strangest experiences I ever had because as a critic, you know, you're watching the film with your critical faculties on, thinking, well, that's not good and that's not good and that's crowbarred into that and that's crowbarred into that. And, it, and it, the best way of describing it is that I had this kind of out-of-body experience. It was like my inner fluffy self went, all right, well, you, the critic, sit there in the chair and get on with that. I'm going to have a dance in the aisles. And and I and I I was I went watching that review. I mean, I wasn't making any of that up. All that stuff about the world turning round and suddenly up being down and left being right and good being bad. That was exactly how I felt about it. And it became a real touchstone for me. It was one of those moments when every single one of my learned critical faculties just proved to to, to be to be as nothing when compared to the tsunami of that indestructible Abba songbook. <clears throat> And the spec. I'm sorry, I'm starting to. I'm starting to well up even thinking about it. So, it always occurred to me that you know, if we if we went back and did this again, was there ever going to be the possible? I was never going to have that experience again because it is one of the most profound experiences I've had in the cinema. There's no question about it. Well, you described it in the thing. You said it's the film that the world needs at the moment because you know there's a lot of bad well, I just things. Thought, yeah, and, and I think so that thought. phrase w was lovely. And uh, Amanda Seyfried described it as a tall drink of fizzy cocktail. So look, let's try and do the rational stuff first. Um, Old Parker, I think, directs it. It's rather more slick than the original. There are some more you know, smoother camera moves and the choreography is a little bit slicker. There are mirrored scenes because obviously you've got the two different time frames, 1979 and now, and it's intercutting past and present and it's got characters in disparate places. And there are scenes that are orchestrated to mirror these, to, to mirror each other so that you get things happening in different times and spaces, but all cut together very nicely. And from, from the point of view of actually the, the slickness of the package, I thought it was very well done. Hugely likeable cast. I mean, Lily James could charm the birds out of the trees with her singing and dancing skills and uh, the younger incarnations of the cast that we now know are you know, are, are very funny. I know they're not doing impressions, but Jeremy Irving does do a little bit of the Piers Brosnan voice. There is something about that. The way, he's, oh, the way he says his O's, I can't do it. But he has he has got those inflections right. And as was mentioned in the in the interview, the script credits, you know, Old Parker writing and then story by Richard Curtis, obviously with help from the family. And when you hear things like, you know, I just want I just want to be I just want to be upfront and say that I enjoy you visually, you think that must be a Richard Curtis line, but I don't know. There are a couple of other lines, one of which I mm -hmm. won't repeat. <laughs> yes. Which when you hear it, you think that's absolutely a, you know a post four weddings uh, line. And you know, Omidyar Lily is really really funny. Yeah, just say yeah, absolutely. He's he's he terrifically he funny. It's a very very funny. small. It's a very small little part. It's a recurrent cameo <laughs> as a sort of customs passport officer, and he and he and he and a lot of it is in the trailer actually, but it doesn't make any difference because the jokes are still funny, and he delivers them. This absolute gorgeous deadpan, which works really, really well. And I also think it's slightly more knowing than the original. I think, for example, there's moments when a character, you know, who we've known as uh, Senor, uh, Senor Sinfuegos, is, is recognised and called out by his first name for the first time. Ah, yes. And there's a honk. And it is like, you know, the kind of, you know, Ben Elton, We Will Rock You, Scaramouche, Fandango stuff. But I think it's done in a more knowing way that means that you know that you're laughing with it rather than at it. And I'm not entirely sure that that was true of the stage show and the original film. But here's the most important thing. None of this would matter if the film didn't have an emotional punch. And, you know, Pierce said it's a very emotional film. And you're not kidding, right? I started having a little weep very early on during the When I Kissed the Teacher sequence, you know, because it starts off with... Yeah, it's very early on. Okay, <clears throat> very, very minutes. early on. And I thought, OK, this is some kind of like... 
you know Pavlov's dog reaction because of because of the, the because of the, the extraordinary experience that I had with that first film. I'm getting some kind of flashback towards that. And then there were other moments when, you know, you get little fragments of songs. You get, you know, you get Pierce singing. It was funny when Pierce Brosnan said, well, I don't know whether they, you know, they auto-corrected my voice. Pierce, they didn't. No, they didn't um, bother. And I mean, I also love the fact that of the three men, you know, they can't sing, they can't dance, they can't jive, but they're having the time of their life anyway. And it doesn't, it doesn't kind of matter. And I... Uh, but what was working was that I was I was emotionally involved because the preposterousness of the plot and the preposterousness of the join the pop songs, you know, narrative, the centre of it are these songs that they're, they're like emotionally hardwired because I ABBA's greatest hits were one of the first albums I ever bought, OK? So there are about three or four moments in it that I'm I'm just sitting there and I'm smiling and I'm beaming and I'm feeling like the world is a lovely place and I'm so happy and I'm not thinking about any of the bad things in the world and I'm and I love the songs, but there's also this kind of underlying you know sadness, this melancholia which is working really well. And then we move towards um, uh, you know my love my life and I've said to you a million times that my love my life is is, is the, the best ABBA song ever recorded. Here's what when we got to the moment when my love my life makes an appearance. I wasn't just crying. I was literally sobbing, like, you know, making... So, and I had to jam my fist into my mouth because I was sitting in the Universal <coughs> screening room, you know, the Universal people... And I was, I was going, oh, 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 and I could hear myself crying. Mark, and I mean, no, and, I'm, and I don't mean just crying. I mean, like, proper, properly weeping and uh you know what you like you're you know you're, you're almost you're, you're wrenching your body because you're trying to stop doing it and i just thought this is just i'm it's pathetic. not just it's not just that i'm here again no it's not pathetic it's not just that i'm here again i love films that work emotionally and this is just like it's emotional dynamite i mean it's really funny and it's really charming and it's really preposterous although it is slicker than it was before and it seems to be more knowing and it seems to be more but it's it's the sucker punch emotion that got me and honestly i'm not kidding i was sitting there even i was, I was sitting there i had my hand can in, i ask can i ask you a question yeah. about this moment that you're talking about is this the scene that pierce began yes to yes describe? and we said don't it's fine. You. No, i'm just quoting yeah yeah yeah, yeah no, absolutely it's yeah. the scene that pierce was referring to in the church it was the scene that That's pierce is referring to okay. in the church I was in pieces. I mean, and in, in, in beautiful pieces because it, it just felt like, you, you know, you put your toe into the electric socket of emotion and every single part of you is... And, I mean, I've had experiences in cinemas with horror films. Like, there's a moment in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when the first time you see Leatherface and you go, <gasps> you know, and, and you're alive and you can feel your fingertips like that or, you know, uh, a moment in some, like, extraordinary action movie, like, the, the, you know, the chase scene in The French Connection when you're gripping the sides of the chairs and that's the thing that cinema does. And I'm sitting there in this sequence and I am... I'm, like I said, I'm not crying. I am openly sobbing. And the film, Dave Norris, who's the projectionist, has said, you have to stay to the very end, OK? Well, thank heaven for that. Yes, in fact, I because, had left and he said, no, go back in. Yeah, well, thank heaven mm. for that because at the end there is something that I wanted to see. But it took me the whole of the credit sequence to gather myself into some... sort. I mean, I was, I was just... And, and here's the question. How much better... Could it have been? How it can't much, be any better, ha, exactly. which is, which is it, why it gets full marks. It, it is the perfect incarnation of what it is, and I loved it. Can I? Point number one, obviously, don't put your toe in any electric socket. No, no, I, I was sorry. Yeah, fine. Sorry. Yeah. Second, no, was, these things. Yeah. Second, you will be able to spot the Wittertainment listener when you go and see it, and the music's playing, 
And after about 30 seconds, a lot of people will get up and they'll go. The Widdertainment listener will stay to the very end because yeah. they'll know Marvel-like, right at the end of the sequence, it's there's a little scene, hello, Omid, it's very funny, and you yeah. need... Okay, that's why And you will need the whole of that credit sequence yes. to gather yourself and to get yourself into a state when you are fit to come out of the film. And, you know, if you, if you, if you wear makeup generally, don't wear makeup. Because okay, I won't. It's, it's Toy Story it, it, three all over again. That's what you're saying. I I just loved it. Yeah. I just loved it. Yes, I know. We're on at an unusual time. This is because you get full golf coverage, uh, of course, coming up from midday. Uh, me, no one is more surprised than us to be on now. But here we are. We just turn up <clears> when we're asked to, and you have missed half an hour of Mamma Mia. Uh, here we go again, <laughs> which is uh, which is out today. A lot of people are seeing it at the moment. Um, you can send your review to Mayo at BBC.co.uk, which is this has just come in from Judith Irvin, Hello. who's seen it in Australia, so they're slightly ahead of us. I am a colonial commoner from Sydney. Uh, my sister and I went to see Mamma Mia today. I enjoyed the first one, but mainly on the strength of the ABBA songs rather than the plot, which is not unexpected with a jukebox musical. However, yeah. we loved this new movie. Apart from the wonderful ABBA songs, it was a breath of fresh air with the younger versions of the characters who were really well cast. We were totally engrossed in the story. We laughed, we cried. And even though I know this is a terrible breach of the code of conduct, I'm afraid it couldn't help singing, singing along to some of the songs but not loudly. We left the cinema with smiles on our faces and songs in our hearts, and we can't wait to see them again. And that is the essence of it, Judith. I think you're absolutely right. You will smile from ear to ear from within 30 seconds. Yeah. Really? I mean, literally, the film starts, and then you go, bing! Okay. And uh, the, uh, the thing that you said about, you know, it's the right, it's the right movie for the moment... And it, and it is. I mean, you know, th there are few people in the world grumpier than me about the way things currently are. And for you the should, whole... You should tell us about that sometime. I should do. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, you know, for, for the whole time that the film was on, I was, I was smiling and weeping. Yeah. It is like... Uh, in fact, when you talk to the cast, and I think you could tell from Pierce and Amanda, as I call them, because they're my yeah. friends, when you go around Pissy for, baby. for Spaggy Bot, pardon? Pissy Baby. Right. Um... They had such a blast making it, and uh, Jeremy Irvin has said that when <clears throat> when the boat came to take him to work while he's making the film, <laughs> on the like, like you talk about this Uber boat, on the boat already were Pierce Brosnan, Stellan Skarsgård, and Colin Firth waiting to take him to work, and he didn't listen to the news, he didn't watch the news for the couple of months that they were making this film. That's it, and that's what going to the movie is like. It's like the outside world doesn't exist. That's just brilliant. Uh, Katerina from Koblenz has uh, went been see it already. Cinema was relatively packed, young and old, though mostly groups of middle-aged girlfriends, talking and snacking all the way through. Um, uh, this was my first cinema experience since I started listening to your show. So maybe I was more aware of the eating than usual. OK, yeah. to your sorry code. about that. I've been an ABBA fan since I was acquainted with their music by my dad, so I'm looking forward to their less-known songs being introduced to wider audience. I, th I, I suppose there's an element of that in as much as most of the big hits go in the first film, yeah. but it doesn't feel like that. No, it, it doesn't. Feel and also, I mean, this, that songbook is so... There's so much in there, you know. I thoroughly enjoyed the film, loved it so much, I was hooked since minute one. And then Katerina says... The middle part was rather slow, and the end felt like a climax no one cared about. No... I'm sorry. Steps back in amazement. This movie made me laugh and smile, and I had the best time. Oh, okay, great. Uh, okay. <clears throat> I thought this couldn't be better. I think this is a, a, a translation issue. Yeah, maybe. okay, fine, fine. A film that is truly worthy successor to the first one, and maybe even better. There you go. I think that's, I think that's the heart of it. Yes. 
Uh, Mayo at BBC. And you, lo- you, t- you loved it, didn't you? I as absolutely much as did. I did. Eight five zero five eight. And, you, and incidentally, you know that because I called you after I'd seen it because you had said to me beforehand. Because you saw it really early on, you weren't allowed to tell anybody. Yes, and you said to me, "You are going to love it." And just absolutely, it's got you dancing and singing and crying uh, written all over it from start to finish. It should be available on prescription. You should be able to go see your GP and say, "Well, I know <laughs> two tickets I for Mamma Mia. Two tickets for Mamma Mia is all you need. You don't need paracetamol, mate. Um, antibiotics. Don't think it's going to help. Try Mamma Mia." Uh, Sean Maxwell. Uh, I would really like if you could read out this email because my media teacher, Mr Drummond, is leaving my school, which is Ringwood School, at the end of this term. Okay. And a lot of schools breaking up today, of course. The man is an inspiration to me and I can't praise him enough for all the hard work and time he's put into the class. I listen to this show whilst doing my uh, Ringwood and Fording Bridge newspaper round. Wow. And Mr Drummond is the only other person I've ever met that listens to your your great show. (laughs) I'll miss Mr Drummond greatly, as I'm sure will lots of other people in this school, judging by the amount of people coming to say a very special goodbye to him. I'll always hold Mr Drummond in very high regard as one of my favourite ever teachers. What a lovely thing to Uh, say. Thank you, Sean. P.S. Alien is Ridley Scott's best movie, not Blade Runner, is what he signs off. That is an opinion which is shared by some people. Uh, many people, indeed. Okay. Anyway, Mr. Mr. Drummond, the media teacher, um, thank you for listening to the show. I hope you continue to listen to the show wherever it is you're moving on to, and uh, keep spreading the word. Even though Sean only knows you, basically, <laughs> uh, that listens to this program. So it's twelve minutes to 11, past eleven. There are loads of other films. There are other films there, which is astonishing, films. isn't it? They might get steamrolled by. I mean, the fact that Incredibles two and Mamma Mia two are out is going to hog most of the chart yeah. and the amount of available cinema income. Yeah. But if I wanted to see something else, what might it be? Hotel Artemis. Have you seen the trailers for Hotel Artemis? I have not. Okay, no. fine. So, um, uh, written and directed by Drew Pierce, who had writing man credits on Iron Man and Mission Impossible movies in the past. It is a sort of near-future dystopian neo-noir set in 10 years. Uh, in on, the future. say that again. It's a... Near-future. Yes. Dystopian. Yes. Neo-noir. Neo-noir. Dystopian... Fully dystopian or... Ne- it's fully dystopian. Neo-dystopian? No, no, no. <laughs> no it's fully okay. dystopian. All right, I've got all those. Okay. And uh, so Jodie Foster um, is oh. this... Uh, for, yes, oh, now you're interested. You thought I was... Up until that point, you didn't care. Now I've just said a name you recognise. Hotel Artemis could be like a, an animation as well, couldn't it? Yeah, it could, but it isn't. Although although it has a cartoonish edge to it, which actually, therefore, you yeah, just yeah. said something very smart. <laughs> Not on purpose, I hasten to add. But eventually it was eventually, happen, That's right. Like because, monkeys typing... Uh, like a stop clock telling the right time to anyway so um Jodie Foster runs the Hotel Artemis which is basically a hospital a sort of uh, for uh, wounded uh, outlaws and vagabonds and uh, fugitives uh, and the ground rules include that you can't be rude to the staff which is basically Dave Batista, who is a hospital orderly he's just got a thing which says orderly and he keeps pointing to it and saying you know this is orderly this means this I've got there's a responsibility I'm a, I'm a professional healthcare person um, and not killing the other patients and not killing the other patients is of course the big one and inevitably what happens is that in this Hotel, which is in fact you know a hospital for ne'er do wells, you will end up getting patients there who uh, have very good reason to want to kill each other. Uh, we start with uh, a, a, a robbery that's happening in the middle of a riot. Uh, somebody gets injured. They have to go to the hotel Artemis, where amongst the current inmates are the obnoxious Charlie Day. Hey, are we safe in here from Doomsday? I mean, are these walls fortified with anything? Those people are animals. They just want clean water. Well, then they can get a job and pay for water like the rest of us. You don't like that? You one of those bleeding heart types? 
Well, hey, cops kill poor people, poor people kill cops. That's the circle of life. Hakuna Matata. Easy for the robots, swimming in your Alta Canal. Take one in an hour, and then after that, you can go. All right. Uh, hey, uh, my TV's broken. I want to watch your riots. Has an old one in the game room. It's hardwired. It should be working. Right, hang on. You want me to go out there with the criminals? Hakuna Matata, buddy. Oh, that's cute. That's not the circle of life as I recall from yeah. the Elton John original. We should point out, incidentally. No, I don't think that's wise. I don't think you should. No? I don't think you should point that out. Oh, well, you can, you can if you wish, but on your own head be it. Okay. That Whenever we play any clips on this show, they all have to be, you know, to, to listen to in advance by the top production team to make sure that there's nothing in them that will be offensive. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. And so a, f a red flag was raised by the fact that that, that, that included a, a phrase not in the English language that the person doing the checking hadn't heard of before and wanted to know whether Hakuna Matata, Hakuna Matata. was rude. <laughs> Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> anyway, twice. OK. So, um, so what happens is that you know, this riot is broken out. is to do with the privatisation of water, which is a theme, obviously, which goes back to the days of, of Chinatown. And um, all these people are assembled in the hotel, Charlie Day, Sophia Boutella, and um, they, they're they all sort of playing off against each other whilst Jodie Foster is running the, uh, the the hospital. Meanwhile, we have news that a criminal kingpin is on his way, played by Jeff Goldblum, playing Jeff Goldblum, who is you know going to be brought in, despite the fact they don't have a room, they don't want him there, they don't have space for him. So it's an odd film. I mean, I quite enjoyed it. It's As I said, it does have a kind of cartoon air to it, um, there's a nice sort of satirical thing going on in the background about this dystopian future in which the, you know, the writing is to do with the privatisation of, uh, of water. There's a lot of fiery interplay between the various cast members as their characters you know, rub each other up the wrong way and double-cross each other. There are also sort of outbursts of, uh, of violence which are done in a you know, fairly kind of explosive and, as I said before, sort of cartoony way. And Dave Bautista is really, really funny. I mean, he is really funny, though, the, the, the fact that he plays his character called Everest because he's like this man-mountain. And the, the recurrent joke all the way through is that because he's got the thing, which he's a healthcare professional, as he says whilst he's dragged dragging criminals out into the back street and you know, disposing of them and showing them their badge. I am a healthcare professional. And he gets lots of laughs. And, you know, Jodie Foster brings a degree of, uh, of class to the whole thing, because she, partly because she's Jodie Foster and partly because the backstory of her character involves tragedy, which you kind of know that that's, you know, how did, how did this person who appears to be this kind of, you know, this little old lady nurse, you know, she's wearing sort of age makeup, how did she get to be in the middle of this, you know, completely crazy criminal underworld? And then, of course, we, you know, there is a backstory which involves tragedy and all the rest of it. Um, I thought it was fairly disposable. It's not something that's going to linger in the mind much longer after you, you watch it. But whilst I was watching it, I thought it was fun. I thought it was kind of entertaining. It's not the most original thing I've ever seen. It does draw on a number of, uh, of other sources, but that's perfectly fine. It's done with a level of flippancy that kind of enables it to get away with the fact that it is basically sort of recycling, you know, ideas that you've seen done before and, you know, some of them better, some of them worse. Sonny K. Brown's very good. As I said, Goldblum's good. Zachary Quinto, who plays um, Goldblum's son, it does a lot of seething. There's a lot of, a lot of top seething by Zachary Quinto. Um, so I thought it was fine. I thought it was disposable. And as I said, it's not going to linger long in the mind. But it, it as dystopian, neo-noir, cartoonish, self-referential thrillers go, it's one of the better ones. Although I imagine that if you ask me in 
three or four weeks' time to tell you the character names and the plot, they will have disappeared from my memory completely. It's interesting that Jodie Foster's in it because she's not in lots of films, but it's usually a hallmark of quality. Yeah, but, uh, you know, she, I think she's having fun. I think she's enjoying it. And, I mean, it's well made. You know, it's, 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 it's solidly done. And she's done... She's done a lot of different types of movies, and I come, I'm trying to think of something that she'd done like this that I, I couldn't. She'd done a couple of sci-fi actioners, and you know, but uh, no, I thought it was. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it whilst thinking, yeah, which is very different to enjoying Mamma Mia, which is fluffy popcorn entertainment, but which fluffy popcorn entertainment which has welded itself into my head, and I'm now never going to forget. I it. think you should review every film between now and midday with reference to, to Mamma Mia. Yeah, I think it's very likely that is going to happen. Uh, it's 19 minutes past 11 o'clock. We're talking movies because uh, we've been shifted from the afternoon because the golf takes over the afternoon uh, and all that coverage starts uh, at midday. If you miss the Pierce Brosnan and Amanda Seyfried, that's going to be on the podcast, which will be available uh, sometime after the end of the show, probably in the first hour. Uh, but there are other things to go see. What else you got? So uh, Prayer Before Dawn, which is based on the true story of Billy Moore, about whom I didn't know before, I'd, uh, before I, I saw the film. Um, and stars Joe Cole in a role that was apparently at one point earmarked for Charlie Hunnan, Charlie Humdrum. Um, Joe Cole's been in things like, he says small roles in, in movies like Green Room and Falling, and, um, it, and he's really, really good, and I absolutely can't... You know, you know, sometimes you see a film and the person who is cast in the lead role is absolutely perfect, and then you discover that actually there was somebody else in that role, and you think, What? How could that film possibly have existed with that other person? Well, that's kind of like it, because in this particular case, Joe Cole is so good and so central. So the story is, we first meet him, he plays Billy. He's um, preparing for a fight. There are no words. Again, this is something that I refer to all the time. I, I like films which do their exposition through, you know, through action, through gesture, through motion, rather than somebody saying, here I am and I am preparing to do a football, uh, you know, whatever it is. So he, there's the ritual of him, you know, getting his hands bandaged up, getting his body greased up and then he goes into into in, in the ring where he is you know beaten but he is he savages his opponent and he takes drugs and he's clearly he's got kind of you know there, there is this internal rage and when he's in the ring he's like a kind of feral creature next thing his flat is raided and he's sent to this notorious prison in bangkok um where he stands out amongst the inmates, the rest of whom are sort of you know covered in in tattoos and one of the things the film does is very little dialogue um but what there is is there's uh, and if you if you there's very little English language dialogue. There is an awful lot of non-English language dialogue, but it's not subtitled. And the, so the way it works for, a Brit, for, for an English-speaking audience is that you only understand as much as the character understands. So when he goes into the prison, he's being spoken to, but he doesn't understand the language that he's being spoken to. But what happens is you understand enough. You understand enough from what's happening because so much of it is to do with gesture, so much of it is to do with, with the way that everything is, is worked physically. And in, it's initially he's in some kind of, you know, utter hellhole and his situation seems precarious. He has to sort of, you know, to, to fight to find his space. And slowly over the course of the, of the movie, he demonstrates that he's a fighter, that he's somebody who, who does boxing, kickboxing and, you know, mixed martial arts, all those things. And this then becomes the commodity that will potentially save him. The film is directed by Jean-Stéphane Sauveur, who directed a movie that, I don't know whether you remember when we reviewed this, called um, Johnny Mad Dog, which is a film about African child soldiers, which is a really, really extraordinary piece of work. I mean, incredibly uh, alarming and worrying film, made, I think, with really good, you know, really good intentions and very, very well directed, but really, really upsetting. 
Um, and what he's done here is he's he's made a sort of experiential film that basically puts you inside <clears throat> the experience of its central character, and you see the world through their eyes. And it's all, it's all very very intense. It, an awful lot of it is to do with the sound design. It has the most incredible sound design. You know when you're in a film <clears throat> when the sound is sort of engulfing you like a wet towel or something and you, you almost feel like you're suffocating because of the noise well it's like that i know it's it's never true to say a film makes you feel like you're in a prison in the same way that i remember seeing um a veteran who was was commenting on saving private ryan and somebody said well you know is, is it like being oh no it was in the sam fuller documentary sam fuller was said somebody said oh you made a, a film and it's just like being in a war he said no it's not like being in a war unless somebody is in the aisle sniping at you that's it. so of course it's not it's a film but whilst you're watching it the experience of being inside this character's violent world inside this character's oppressive world is really really intense you can feel the heat you can feel the clamminess of the bodies you can feel the you know the the rage of the central character so it's and I came out afterwards, and a friend of mine, a colleague, said, "I'm not entirely sure what the point of the story was." Um, and I think that's it was for me that was missing the point. The point was that it is and it it is the experience of. I mean, as a piece of experiential cinema, it's really it's really really sort of overpowering. And the fight sequences. I mean, people talk about the fight sequences in Raging Bull being uh, you know being realistic, and for people who said this is like Raging Bull meets Midnight Express, I can understand what you know where that comparison came from. The fight scenes are, you know, they are brutal and they are really tough and you really feel like you're in the middle of that environment. It's a very strong piece of work. Uh, and what's it called again? It is called, I've just forgotten the title, because I'm, it's called A Prayer Before Dawn. OK. So these are the movies, and I, we have mentioned this before, these are the films where presumably the film companies have thought, OK, well, there, is a, there are a couple of steamrollers out there. <laughs> so would they... Counter-programming. OK, counter-programming. But is, is that quite creative or is that a time where they're going to say I don't know what are we going to do let's just put something out because there'll be people who want to go to the cinema who don't want to see one of these big no, counter programming can be very very inventive the thing is if you've got big blockbusters in the cinema you don't want to put up a small you know a, a, if you can see The Incredibles or you can see Mamma Mia you don't want something that's going to compete what you want is a film that says okay I want to see something completely different which is why I think it's it's very smart, for example, to release a movie like this, which I think has been film of the week in some of the broadsheets that that haven't wanted to lead on on Mamma Mia because not everybody, not all critics, feel the same way about Mamma Mia as I do. There is also um, a film out this week, which is a documentary called Spitfire, which is a documentary about the development and deployment and legacy of the Spitfire, which is obviously we've just had the RAF centenary. Mm -hmm. Did you see any of the flypasts? While I was waiting for Amanda and Piers Brosnan. That's right. And they, and they were delayed, and I think they were delayed because of the you know because of the traffic in in London at the time. But we stood waiting for them, watching this extraordinary flypast yeah, happening. It was unbelievable, it wasn't was. it? I mean, absolutely unbelievable. So. This is the story of the background on how the plane was developed, on where its you know where its unique design came from, the design, the innovation. There are clips from the first of the few with uh, Leslie Howard, and there are interviews with people who actually flew the planes, both men and women, because of course one of the stories that was overlooked for a long time is that women flew Spitfires from the factories to the airfields, and there are you know so you actually get these stories of what it was like to fly in this extraordinary plane. I saw these Spitfires. I hadn't seen a Spitfire before. I'm sure my heart was beating hundreds to the dozen. <laughs> when you actually told you're going to fly in the Spitfire, I suppose it's almost breathtaking. It's partly nervousness, will I do it properly, and partly elation that you have finally made it. 
I got in the aircraft and the chappies said, how many of these have you flown this? And I said, I haven't flown one at all yet. This is the first one. And he <laughs> promptly went <gasps> and fell off the aeroplane. <laughs> So that's, you, a, that's a good story. And that I, lovely? I've already learned something. I had no idea that women flew Spitfires. Yeah. And also, I mean, one of the things that they do is they talk about getting into the Spitfire, that in order to do it, you have to turn sideways because your shoulders, because it's really narrow. It's a really, really narrow cockpit that you're in. So you have to turn and then, you know, turn your shoulders back. So, that, so it's almost like you're wearing it as an overcoat, which is, which is just extraordinary. So the film is narrated by Charles Dance in, in, a, in very, very kind of Christopher Lee tones. It's very like that. But the tone of the interviews, which, you know, they're talking, they're talking about the war, and so on the one hand, there is this, you know, this extraordinary story of the Spitfire and there's so much, uh, you know, romantic legacy tied up with that and just how important it was and, you know, just the significance of the Battle of Britain and, and all those kind of things. Um, but you're also dealing with, you know, loss of comrades. You're also, there is, there is footage of dogfight footage that some, apparently at some point there is, cameras were put in the King's Seat and the cameras activated when the guns were firing. So there is some sort of grainy dogfight footage. And you you are struck by the extraordinary bravery and, and, I mean, just, you know, what a remarkable thing it was. The thing that worked the most for me is it's a very sort of, it's a very old-fashioned documentary. It's not... You know, it's not kind of... I mean, we're in a time at the moment when you've got things like the McQueen documentary and all that sort of stuff. It's it's very... But it absolutely fits the subject matter. And I found it very moving, not just to hear the stories and to see the modern-day footage of the... you know, Because obviously there are Spitfires that are still flying. But to hear these stories and, you know, to hear stories of, you know, extraordinary bravery, but also to hear the story of how something that, that, you know, as a kid, everyone had a toy Spitfire, right? You know, everyone did. Everyone knew that the Spitfires could do things that the Luftwaffe couldn't do, and you know, because we'd seen it in the movies. And I thought, I, I, I found it really engrossing. I, I, I found it very, very moving, and it told me stories that I didn't know before. And I mean, I don't know anything about aeroplane design, and I know, you know, I know, I know little about uh, military aviation history. But I, I felt that it. it so they said the, the, the only sort of strange thing was occasionally I thought the Charles Dance was. I mean, I love Charles Dance. I could listen to Charles Dance read the phone book. There were moments when I thought that even Christopher Lee would go, Charles, a little lighter. <laughs> I think the Spitfire I had was a, an Airfix. Yeah, we all had Airfix ones, and they, and they were they were they were wonderful. And you would hang them from your, you know, from your just above your HMS Victory, which is a little. I don't think that worked as, <laughs> as a historical scene. I remember asking my mum when I was a kid, which side the Cowboys were on in World War Two. Okay, and she had to. I was a kid, like that I was, was an four or something, but I had a cowboy outfit, and they were, you know. So, but certainly when the Spitfires flew over for the RAF 100th, while we were waiting for Pierce and Amanda, that was certainly quite a moment. Uh, and in the news today, the youngest Spitfire pilot to fight in the Battle of Britain, Jeffrey Wellham, has just died at the age of 96. He was a squadron leader. He was 18 when he joined the RAF in August 1939, won the Distinguished Flying Cross. So, uh, the story is. Still with us, still in the news. John McMillan, listening to your show over the years, Mark often reviews documentaries which have a cinematic release, but which I, if I'm being honest, would normally avoid. Documentaries belong on the telly. Also, I thought. This evening, uh, I attended a first ever documentary feature, Spitfire, and I'm so glad that I did. This film was simply beautiful and moving. 
The aerial footage and soundtrack were perfect. The tales from World War II pilots had me silently weeping. Yeah. But then hearing any old service man or woman these days is enough to get me going. A byproduct, possibly, of my own time in the army. So a big thank you to the makers of this movie for a wonderful and thoughtful night's viewing. So on the basis of what John is saying, hunted out as a cinematic yes, release I if mean, you can. Yeah, I, <clears throat> like I said, I, I, I found it very, very engaging. And it is, it is moving, and it is moving hearing those stories. It really is. Mayo at bbc.co.uk. If you uh, want to contribute, if you see any of these uh, films, you can text 85058. Uh, in the next half hour, do TV Movie of the Week back in its usual place. What else are we going to be reviewing? Generation Wealth, The Receptionist, and Dadak, I think. Generation Wealth, Generation comma, Wealth, The Receptionist, comma, and Dadak. Okay. Darren Rogers saw Spitfire on Tuesday. This is the film we were just talking about before. Yeah. The news, a wonderful insight into the history of this wonderful machine, beautiful photography, uh, excellent interviews. Darren, thank you very much. 85058 mayo at bbc.co.uk. If you just joined us, we're here because the golf coverage starts at 12, which is why uh, we're not on at our usual time between 2 and 4. The podcast will be available uh, soon as we're done. And there's the full interview uh, about Mamma Mia with... Uh, Pierce Brosnan and Amanda Seyfried. So, TV movie of the week. Uh, this is obviously, uh, we put this together from the best films on subscription-free television, otherwise we'd be here forever, uh, including Robert Altman's MASH, Tales from the Crypt, The Box Trolls, Wreck-It Ralph. I saw the trail for the new Wreck-It Ralph. And? Looked very good. Did it? Actually. I think it's called Ralph Wrecks the, the Internet. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> it's uh, actually what it's called. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, he goes inside the internet and he breaks it. Uh, the Born Ultimatum and Mamma Mia. Uh, Jason Simpson, I never thought I'd choose something that isn't MASH, but I have to go for The Living Daylights because Timothy Dalton was a Bond ahead of his time. Can yeah, Mark... he got a bit, of a, a bit of a rough ride of it, didn't he? Can Mark resist picking minions? James Gordon, my pick would be either Box Trolls or Wreck-It Ralph, two of the most original pieces of mainstream animation in years. I think if I had to pick one, I'd go for Box Trolls because it really felt it was the most completely realised of the two. Perfectly designed, intricately plotted, and gorgeous to look at. Paul Slade, Box Trolls is a beautiful beating heart of a film, grungy and near-perfect. Mark would choose Mamma Mia for some unfathomable reason. Uh, Karen Richardson, Lashings of Mash for me. The film Lashings of Mash. That defines the dark comedy genre, plus wonderful performances from a great cast. Mark will choose Minions. Samuel Bett, Mamma Mia is clearly the worst film on the list. The obvious and only choice has got to be The Bourne Ultimatum. And John McBrain, I'm tempted to pick MASH. It's an Altman classic, but Mamma Mia beats it for me, and I reckon Mark will feel the same. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, I mean, I am going to go for Mamma Mia, not least because, you know, now with the sort of the, 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 the critical sort of embracing of Mamma Mia, here we go again. And, you know, we need to remember that Phil Lloyd's film was the film that started all of this. If it hadn't been for Phil Lloyd's film basically breaking me and making me realise that actually my critical faculties weren't up to the job, then we wouldn't be where we are now. So I am absolutely going to put in Mamma Mia. I remember saying at the end of at the end of the review that we did when it first came out, I said, you have to come and see it with me because it'll make you a better person. <laughs> that sounds like the kind of thing you'd say. I know, but I kind of feel like, you know, that's it. And, and, what, a, and what a lovely double bill, right? Mamma Mia on the television, which is on uh, 5 to 2 in the afternoon on Sunday on ITV1. 5 to 2. 5 to 2. 5 to 2. ITV. ITV1. There's more than one, apparently. Yes, there is. ITV1 on Sunday afternoon. Okay. Mamma Mia. Uh, TV, TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Mm. On the list, Mr. Deeds, The Visit, A Little Chaos, and Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. 
Samuel Campbell. Phantom... I don't think a little chaos should be on that. I quite like a little chaos. Well, I'm afraid it is. So that's just... you saw it, didn't you? No. Okay. Samuel Campbell. Phantom Menace isn't that bad. Obviously, the taxation of trade routes plot is nonsense, but it did introduce Darth Maul and has one of the great lightsaber battles. Duel of the Fates is as good a piece of music as any other John Williams composition. That is a good composition. Yes. Bethany Clinics. <clears throat> Every year or so, I feel like all the Poe-faced Star Wars fans should be forced to watch Phantom Menace just to remind them that while the current crop of Star Wars films aren't The Empire Strikes Back, they are definitely star systems better and apart from The Phantom Menace. And for this, we should be thankful because it's truly awful. Adam <laughs> S. Leslie, there are worse films than Phantom Grimace, but few, Phantom so, Grimace. few so disappointing. A film that could have been anything it wanted to be. No film in history has had such a guaranteed audience and yet it had to be this. In 1999, when a new wave of young directors were making their mark, two of the old masters, Lucas and Kubrick, staged a big comeback, comeback and both disappointed. James Adamson, as dreadful as The Phantom Menace is, the visit has it beaten hands down. Shonky found... Sorry, shonky? Shonky found... That's a great ...footage-style horror made long after found footage was deader than disco, poorly made and based entirely on the assumption nobody on Earth shares that old people are creepy and scary, so no one suspects a thing. John Wimbush, Phantom Menace, obviously, but... Will we get another bout of anecdotage where we hear about the Radio 1 trip to the premieres, though, for the first time? Also, did you know I'm that when they, when they did the credits for Towering Inferno, yeah, yeah, brackets yeah, 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 yeah. continued on page 94? Yeah, but you know what? <clears throat> I'm nothing if not consistent. That is true. All right? That is true. But let's let's pass over that this time. Yeah. TV of the movie of the week, So Bad It's Bad, is... Well, Mr Deeds, I'm surprised that you haven't heard any stuff about that, which is the 2002 film starring uh, Adam Sandler. And the reason I'm putting it in there... You know, is quite apart from that, it is rubbish. Although it's not, I mean, you know, th th that's actually a fairly light list. The visit is interesting because I really didn't like the visit, but I have had so many people, smart, smarter than me, people who said, no, it's you just missed it. It's actually really sort of sharp, and you know, and uh, people who really, really like it. So I may, you know, I may have miscalled that. The Phantom Menace thing, um, it is awful. It is a terrible film, but I'm a bit beyond Star Wars bashing now. Well, I think... Uh, and I, a little chaos shouldn't be on that list. But to, to be perfectly honest, Adam Leslie's point, that it, there are worse films yeah, than there it. Are. But it was the fact that it was so disappointing and that it could be anything it wanted to be. And, yeah, and, and, it, and it was that. Yeah. <clears> but <throat> no, I'm going to go for Mr Deeds because um, I think Adam Sandler needs to be called out every time he's not making Punch Drunk. Love. OK, and, and when can we avoid that? You can avoid that... Uh, Five past two in the afternoon on Saturday on five asterisk. Five star. That Which is five asterisk. Well, we've had five star. An asterisk is a star. It basically. literally says the word asterisk. It doesn't, it's not a star. It literally says the word asterisk. I think it's a joke. Oh. Anyway, so it's on... It's, it's on. <laughs> well, that's the, the very <coughs> definition of something falling upon deaf ears then, isn't it? Because, you know... Okay. I always like the way you read that out as though you can't tell the time at all. I, Which indeed you can't. I have a problem with the, you know, with telling the time. Sixteen minutes to twelve on five. Okay, live. yes. If you want to put it, like that, I have a problem with telling the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. He has okay. got a problem with telling the time. Uh, what else is out? Uh, Dadak, which is um, Indian film uh, directed by Shashank Kaitan, and it's a, this is a very, a very odd film. Um, I saw it uh, the National Press show, and it was great that it was National Press show because quite often Hindi language films aren't uh, aren't National Press shown. At the very beginning, there's a there's, there's a card which talks about uh, honour killings, and 
and then you pretty much forget that that, uh, that that card was there because what then unfolds is a sort of Romeo and Juliet style romance about a kind of a burgeoning love affair that crosses caste boundaries. So you have this um, young buck uh, who is uh, played by uh, Ishan Qatar called Madaka who falls in love with Patavi, played by Jami Kapoor, and she is the daughter of this kind of uh, wealthy businessman, politician, corrupt politician who is in the process of stealing an election. Um, he's in love with her. They, his father says, you have to stay away from her. You, you, you can, you know, you are not... That's it can't, it. can't work. You you must promise me that you will stay away from me. And he does promise, but then of course he can't because you know they're in love. So he starts you know attempting to woo her. He pursues her to the swimming pool where their eyes meet. She she you know she sort of returns his gaze. He starts to do these kind of quite fun little things. That actually, at one point he says, I'll, "I'll write and sing you a song," and then he does. And there's a lot of comedy business about that. And, you know, it's light and sweet, but her father's hostility is anything but. And it looks like they're going to have no choice but to run away and run away into a real world, which is kind of quite tough, in which there'll be economic hardship and, and struggle to find uh, to find work and things. The interesting thing about the film is it, it, it for most part of it, it has a sort of, you know, a lightness of tone and a, and a romance, but obviously it's dealing with, uh, you know, issues about, you know, class and caste and all that stuff. And then it absolutely has a has an ending that was that just was jaw dropping that was really jaw dropping and um, in a good way in an impressive way because i you know i i had not seen it coming at all and of course you know i, I should have done because the film was all leading up to it and i was saying before that one of the things about films which do something at the end that you don't expect is the question is always is it is it justified did the story did the story lead you to that point even if you didn't realize that you were being led to that point were you following the narrative breadcrumbs but not knowing that it was taking you to this you know cabin in the woods and and I think it did um I enjoyed it the cast were you know very very uh likable and uh Javi Kapoor is uh, really you know charming and a sort of you know sort of real starry cinematic presence and and I liked it and I you know I it was the first thing in the week and it was a, you know, this romance and I like the Romeo and Juliet part of it, but there is a serious subject matter underneath it. And, um, and it completely wrong footed me. And I came out at the end afterwards and somebody was there from the distributors and they said, you know, what did you think? I said, well, I was, you know, I was really caught. I've got, I said, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not where you think it's going to go. Is it? It's a bit of a, it's a bit different, and, I, and congratulations to them because I, I was genuinely caught off guard by it, and I thought it was very. And then afterwards, somebody said to me, "What, what was it like?" I said, "It's one of those things when it's you know it's, it's enjoyable and saying, but you have to see the film because there there is this other thing going on in it, this darkness, and actually there are moments of it in which that is done really well." So anyway, that's called Dadak, and that is out this week. Also out this week, Generation Wealth, which you and I were sort of talking about a little bit briefly. It, Generation Wealth is more than just a film. There is a multi-platform project that Lauren Greenfield's been working on since 2008. She made Queen of Versailles. Um, about is she the director of this yeah, film? Yes, so she, this film that she made, Queen of Versailles, which is about this family that tried to build the biggest house in the US before the crash happened. This new project... Um, it said in the press release, it says it was released in 2017 as a museum exhibition, a photographic monograph, and a documentary film, which always makes me think of the Ruttles' last album, Let It Rot, was simultaneously released as a film, a record, and a lawsuit. And uh, it's basically sort of following that her ongoing project to explore the phenomenon of the sort of post-greed is good generation and our experience of money, power, and sex, and a world in which consumerism appears to have devoured everything. Here's a clip. 
I've been a photographer for 25 years, with my lens focused on wealth and the excesses of our culture. The scale of the excess became clear when I documented the family building the largest house in America. I noticed that no matter how much people had, they still wanted more. I wondered if the hundreds of individual stories I had shot about money, fame, sex, body image, even plastic surgery for dogs, were all connected, and what they said about us. So that's kind of the thesis of the film. And it, as I said, it's an, on, you know, it's an ongoing project. She sounds and like the woman who uh, introduced the Serial podcast. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, which you did. I haven't heard. Okay, uh, every, everyone tells me that Serial is just... Sarah Koenig, is it? That's right. Everyone tells me that Serial is just brilliant. So basically what you get is, you know, interviews with the super elite and those who have nothing. We hear about the soul-crushing experience of a porn star, you know, craving fame and finding only emptiness. We hear from millionaires whose greed has got the better of them and has, you know, left them as exiles and outlaws. We hear from mothers who've turned their children into commodities and then regretted it. We hear from people who have eating disorders and body dysmorphia. And we hear a lot from the director herself, a lot of sort of, um, you know, sort of self-referential stuff. And there's, there's a couple of things. The, the, the underlying thesis is that a society, the society is on the brink of collapse. Um, there's a stuff at the beginning which says, you know, just before the famous uh, societies of the world collapse, they suddenly indulged in the most, you know, extraordinary wealth and, and indulgence and then that's the point at which everything like you've kind of you've removed yourself from the gold standard of morality you've moved into something in which everything just means nothing at all and that means the society is about to collapse so it's all framed in this kind of historical we are on the brink of catastrophe and it tells us that in periods of you know uh, of great opulence and great consumerism in which everything is to do with how you look how you you know fame all, all those things that society is is not in a healthy state and my to which my question is tell me something new um it's like you know hearing Brett Easton Ellis saying that consumerist society is not a great thing um is a bit like yeah i know and what 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 I felt was, on the one hand, th there's a lot of stuff here that I agree with. I do think that there is something sort of fundamentally out of whack about any society in which it is to do with, you know, pursuit of things that have no substance. But I also felt that there was an, an awful lot of, of going round these subjects and tying these things together, but not actually ever landing the sucker punch, not ever actually properly getting below the surface. I mean, we do see a sort of series of quasi-redemptive arcs that the characters who were interviewed do come to a point of realisation about their own situation. There is a lot in the third act of people sort of realising that, that, that what they've done and the lives that they've led have perhaps not led them to the places that they wanted to be. Can't you pick examples like that in any era? I mean, I'm just sort of backing up what you're saying, really, yeah. that you can, you can find people who've made the wrong choices and had empty, shallow lives, and you can make a movie full of people who've given sacrificially and helping lots of other people and working for very worthy causes in terrible places, and you come yeah. out feeling, OK, well, there's, there's yes. good in society. Yeah, I think the answer to your question is, yes, you can, and therefore, you know... So, so my problem... Although there is, there is some interesting stuff here and there is, a, there is an underlying thesis which, you know, which you know, is, is an arguable point, what I felt was 
but it's not we're not I'm not sure that this is actually getting us somewhere it felt like the outskirts of an argument it felt like the detritus of an argument as opposed to I mean it's interesting there are certain there's a certain form of documentary filmmaking kind of polemical documentary filmmaking in which you you know you take a thesis you take an argument and you argue it and you demonstrate it and you prove it with all that sort of stuff and it can be really really richly rewarding but it can also sometimes be a bit like yeah okay but i'm not entirely sure where this has got us to anyway i know some other people like it more than i do um it's called generation wealth and if you know if you want to see a film about the empty vacuousness of a consumerist society and where that's going no, to take I, you then i don't really know i thought you probably didn't no. but I, you know but is, it, <laughs> is it is it the kind of thing michael moore would have made or is no. it kind of more polemical than that less funny Yes, certainly, certainly less fun. I mean, Michael Moore is a, Michael Moore is a very different type of filmmaker. Um, and Michael, Moore, there's a new Michael Moore film coming, isn't there? Which I I don't think I read. Michael Moore is making a new. Oh, you know, but yes, uh, I th- it 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 wasn't as strong a piece of work as I you know as I perhaps had hoped. Also out uh, this week, and again, this is another bit of, sort of what you would call counter programming. Is the Receptionist, which is this feature by uh, Jenny Liu, and it's a film which I mean it's a real it's a labour of love, um, although it's a film. The, the, the subject matter is, is is very very difficult. It's about a Taiwanese graduate who is uh, here in the UK. She can't find work. She goes to a number of uh, uh, you know job centres looking for work. She can't get work. She ends up taking a job as a receptionist, as the receptionist in a massage parlour, which obviously you know massage parlour is means something else. And at first, she's kind of disgusted by the by the work and the prospect of it, but she needs the money and she thinks, it's, OK, I'll do this. And then what happens is that she gradually comes to respect the women that are working there who are, you know, at the sharp end of very, you know, very, very difficult circumstances. The men they deal with, you know, run the gamut from the vaguely pathetic to the violently pathological and... Uh, some of the characters seem to be dealing with it and some others, like an innocent newcomer, not so much. Um, I interviewed uh, Jenny Lou because uh, the way the film got made was that she had written a screenplay. She, it, was, it was inspired by her own experiences. She said that the film was about the way in which you can have dreams and the dreams get broken and the dreams get left behind. And she had first-hand experience of somebody who had killed themselves and she was trying to do a, make a depiction of... People trying to find their way in a society and finding themselves cast adrift and finding themselves sort of shut out, and and you know how those dreams can get broken. And she she wrote a screenplay, and the screenplay won a screenplay award. And then they made a trailer for the movie, and then they needed crowdfunding, like anything else. You know, we were talking last week about the fact that Deborah Haywood was on the. that the, the list, the Screen International list of stars of tomorrow, in the same year that Hope Dixon Leach was, and in fact, it took both of them ten years to get their feature made. And in the case of, uh, of Jenny Lewis, it's taken her a long time to get this done. It's a long process, but she has got it done. And I thought it was a, a very interesting film. I mean, on the one hand, the portrait of the milieu that it, that it has of the, you know, this massage parlor world is authentically grim, and uh, and it's tough. And the film absolutely doesn't soft pedal on that there's nothing titillating about this environment at all it's very very tough and very very grim as it should be um but it's leavened by the fact that you have the characters in the drama are played with a with a degree of vibrancy that kind of counter kind of counters the the bleak milieu in which they're working the second thing is f- despite the fact that it has 
melodramatic turns, it did feel like it was truthful and honest, and it did feel like it was you know a, a film that knew the world that it was talking about and was depicting a, a genuine one, was depicting a genuine struggle. And it was made, I think, it was made with you know with, with honesty and passion. And the other thing about it is, although it's quite it's quite a hard film to to like, it's quite a tough watch. There's no question about that. Um, I admired the fact that it had that it had told its story. I admired the fact that you know we we. We often talk about this about critics saying, well, you, you, know, you have no idea how hard it is to make a film. Well, I do have an idea of how hard it is to make a film. It's basically impossible. And then if you manage to make a film and you manage to make a film that's actually telling a difficult story and it has some insight and it has the smack of authenticity about it, then that, I think, is particularly admirable. I know that we're going to... Uh, we'll, we'll, I don't want to end on this. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Mamma Mia in a minute because we're coming towards the end of the show. But I thought that The Receptionist was... Uh, you know, a, a a really interesting calling card film, and I think that uh, hats off to Jenny Lou for getting it made. And although it's a tough watch, there's no question it's a tough watch. Be warned, it is a tough watch. It also has heart, and it has an element of redemption, which is which you know sort of rings throughout the movie itself. So that's called the reception. And that, as I said again, is another example of a film which you would think of as counter-programming, you'll have to seek it out. I think it's playing a few cinemas. I think it's playing, you know, just, just a few days to start with. And then depending on how much traction it gets, then it will play in other places. But it oh. is well <clears throat> worth seeking out. Uh, I, I think we have time for this for Go Melissa ahead. Williams in Hammersmith, OK? Yes. I want to apologise in advance to Mark for the sin I'm about to commit. Oh, dear. Uh, I live in Hammersmith. Uh, I was the person who was concerned about the structural integrity of the church because of all the corners. Oh, yes, because yeah, yeah, we have so many corners that the church is actually going to fall down. I enjoy your weekly witterings, particularly fond of the recent segment of Hills Upon Which I Would Die. Yes. My other love is set film soundtracks, and I listen to them as often as I do your show. Here's the problem. Yes. Recently, I was striding along to the wonderful soundtrack of Mary Poppins. Mm. Which is, incidentally has the uncanny ability to cheer me up no matter what my mood. Yeah. I was listening to the Mr. Banks song, A Man Has Dreams, when I stumbled upon my hill. I don't want I to give away any song. spoilers. Yeah. Obviously, Q Mark saying everyone has to have seen Mary Poppins by yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll be careful okay. what I say. This song comes fairly far into the film, shortly after the Tuppence incident, yes. when Mr. Banks is talking to Bert about yeah. his ambitions. Yes. To an important... That's an Poppins impo- woman. That Poppins woman. It's an important... And, of course, there's a new Mary Poppins. I've seen the trailer for the new one. Yeah, but, oh, I thought you were about to say you've seen the film. It's an important moment, but also a point of fury for me. The lyrics start, A man has dreams of walking with giants mm-hmm. to carve his niche in the edifice of time. time. This is where I zone out. Mr Banks pronounced niche as niche, as in itch, Rather than, <laughs> rather than, and, that, and then that's it. Rather than the Suddenly. correct pronunciation, as in niche and quiche. As a biologist, this is like nails down a blackboard oh. and ruins an otherwise heartfelt moment. I realise it's a chargeable offence to say anything bad about Mary Poppins in the church, yeah. and apologise once again for my crime. Testament to the music and story. It takes only two lines to recover my composure. But is it to do with? It, 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 I'm, <clears throat> Because it's an American, you know, back film. D- d- don't the Americans say niche? Yeah, well, there you go, and there's the problem. I know, but the Americans also say math. And that's why, if you've, got, seen if you've, got, too. If you've got a maths degree here in the UK, you're smart, because in America they just do math. But we do maths. We do more than one of them. So our podcast will be uh, available very, very shortly, which will have the full uh, abatastic interview with Pierce Brosnan uh, and Amanda Seyfried. So what is our movie... Of I don't believe week. you're even having to ask me. It is Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, and I can't wait 
to go again. Well, I mean, the show was really good. I really... Are we really... in the podcast now? Is yes, that we okay, are. Fine. Okay. I just, I am looking forward to the cruise. Okay. It's been a very long time since the last one. Yeah, I know, I know. And it's, we're, it's the full four weeks. Yeah. So obviously we'll be posting updates and, you know, broadcasting live and all that kind of stuff in yeah. the normal, in the normal. Although the show will, you know, there'll be this front of, of the show uh, continuing <clears throat> while Mark and I and uh, are sunning ourselves and having an educational experience. Is it educational? Oh, at, at times. Okay. And it's very nice of Edith and Clarice, Edith and, Clarice and Robbie and Sanjeev just to maintain the facade uh, of the show as we go through the next few weeks. But Yes, uh, obviously. Know. Can I tell you, when I, was at, when I was at Latitude, which apparently we're now allowed to say, I had well, a drink. you can say it because it's... it's yeah, I'm past. not selling it, right? Yeah, you're not selling it. I had a drink with Nicola. Nicola was there. Nicola, our studio manager. Yeah, he was there in, all, in all his Frenchness. And, uh, and so we were texting each other going, you know, are you here? Oh, yeah, I'm here. Where are you? And then, of course, the messages aren't getting through. And then you're like, it's up and down. And then we managed to meet up, didn't we? And it was very nice. After all this time of having this kind of, you know, only ever meeting in a studio and me asking. And was he slightly disappointing? In, you know, No, it was no. thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling, yeah. And, uh, you know, bilingual family who can, you know, who can, who can slip in and out of, you know, different languages. Just like yours, I'm sure. Yeah, just like mine, because mine can slip in and out of sounding a bit West Country or sounding a bit London or sounding a bit maybe oh, do we do all we do all the dialects and it was very good fun and I had to I had to I explained in fact even that I how charmed I was by the fact it turns out what turns out if you're if this is great it turns out that if you know um when we hear somebody speaking in a French accent it sounds deeply you know classy yeah. exactly well apparently an English person speaking French with an English accent is the same right and I thought that can't be the case. It must. It must just sound like just some, somebody, uh, you know, murdering a, a beautiful language. But it doesn't. Apparently, so. So if I go, you know, oh, la plume de matante. No, that just apparently weak ridiculous. at the knees, right? Yeah, yeah. You see, there we are. Yeah, but Nicolas been here too long. He doesn't really know these things anymore. I think. Anyway, um, you should hear him doing. You should hear him doing. An English person speaking French. Oh, is he coming? Where is he? Come on, come on. Come, come and what? do the English person speaking French. This is, this is very good. Okay. Hang on. Right. Well, I think obviously we'll be the judge of that. It might have been you'd had so much cider by this point. I wasn't drinking. I anything, was working. We had, that was, we had a drink together after. Right. Grab a, a thingy. Yeah, fine. So, right. So, ça va? Ça va très bien, merci. <laughs> that's, that's French with an English accent again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, so go on. So, um... In French, but in an English accent, do me describing what it was like being at Latitude and meeting you. So, um, oh yeah, in French. In French, Even yeah. in, in, easier. In, in French. It's getting easier. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, but in an English accent, in, in my English accent. C'était très, très sympathique <laughs> de vous rencontrer pour un bière. Yes, yes. Oh, oui, très bon bière. Très bon bière. And uh, et aussi de vous voir à Latitude. Latitude. No. Latitude, yeah, yeah. Latitude. Et nous avons bien discuté. No, that, that, was, that was a little bit too French. <laughs> it was. That's, was it? Way yeah. too French. Way too French. So French? Yeah. Uh, uh, I thought that was quite... No. No, 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 it was fine again. up until... Try again. The, try again, the last bit you just did. Uh, C'était très, that's, très bien, très, yeah. très bon de discuter. That's right, okay, that's yeah. better. Yeah, that's more like Et it. voilà. Et nous avons bien rigolé. Um, mm, no. Nous avons, but it was a little bit French. No. What? 
Honestly, my French is. A, but here's the thing: if if you were a French, well, you are a French person. If you say another French person heard an English person talking like that, yeah. would they actually think, "Wow, that's so seductive and charming," or would they just think you just sound terrible? No, they they think it sounds lovely. As I was telling you, you know, I fell in love with my wife, who's British. Yes, because she was uh, speak. She was. Parlez comme ça. Um, everyone <laughs> thought it was lovely, like Jane Birkin. You know? um, yeah. Yeah. Je t'aime moi non plus. It was, it was your, <laughs> so that was your version of je t'aime moi. It was, oui. yeah. Mais oui. Well, this yeah. has been an Isn't educational like, I know, I need, I, 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 I never knew this. I mean, suddenly I realised it's like a superpower on the continent. I don't think it's an excuse for a bad accent, which is what... Apparently it is an excuse. Nicola fell in love as a result of hearing a bad mm. French accent. Although I have to say, your wife's French accent sounded pretty perfect to me. No, it's not. <laughs> there, there we go. I can guarantee. Anyway, that, there it. Uh, merci, Nicolas. Merci à vous. Au revoir. Bon vacances. Bon, bon vacances. Bon, bon uh, croisière. Bon what? Oh, is that cruise? cruise. Very good. Merci. Very good. Adds a little bit of class to the show. He's from Croydon, you know. I know. He's the whole thing's an act. Uh, okay, I just want to mention this. This is from uh, Ellie, who's twelve. Went to see Incredibles Hello, 2. Basically, Incredibles 2, Mamma Mia 2 are just going to steamroll at everything. Yes. So let's just finish with this. I went to see Incredibles 2 for my dad's birthday. We're all huge Pixar and Incredibles fans. have been looking forward to this film ever since the first teaser trailer came out. Mm-hmm. The screening started on a good note. With a wonderful sh- with the wonderful short Bao. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. B-A-O. Which is, which is the name of a, of a dumpling. Which had the entire cinema roaring with laughter. Although I have to say... Yes, Roaring with Laughter and certainly Child 2 was doing a lot of Roaring with Laughter. But there's a lot of kind of... What? <laughs> You're <laughs> kidding me. It is really odd, isn't it? I thought the opening sequence was very well done. The animation was flawless, right down to the faint tan line from where the Incredibles masks had been. I found the characters more relatable in this instalment, especially Violet. I found the scene... Uh, with the raccoon, hilarious, and Jack Jack was the star of the show. Jack Jack, it, 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 and I, it, this is absolutely, it's the minions factor. More the, minions, more funny, the more new, Jack Jack, more funny. The new supers were a good addition. I understand why the film was a PG, because I found one scene quite creepy. Which scene would that be? Uh, and that some younger children might be scared of. Overall, my family think it is better than the first film by a mile. My dad thinks it was better than Infinity Wars. Uh, and he's a huge Marvel fan. Thank you for entertaining the nation one witter at a time. Thank you very much indeed, Ellie, age 12. And I have to say, we mentioned a thing about the warning last on last week's program. Oh, yes, about because it, there, it features a stroboscopic display. All that. And I went to see it a second time. And uh, in middle of London, no warnings. Didn't see any warnings anywhere. Oh, really? So it is kind of... I mean, I don't know what the legal situation is, but basically... I think a lot of cinemas aren't doing them. The okay. warning is not clear enough. And, and, but there's a lot, you know, there's a, a lot of strokes. And you did on. say that there had been a news story uh, about this. Um, yes, and, and people, it, and, and one of our listeners, you know, that was in a screening and someone fainted and they had to stop the film and and so on. So yeah. it is, and they say this on the news a lot. You know, the next scene contains, contains flash know, photography. Flashing, flash photography. Well, the whole thing about the screen slaver. Yeah, that's all stroboscopic. So if there's Anyone you know who's going to go and see Incredibles to do warn them in just advance. Talk, just talk about it in advance. Yeah. But I think a lot of cinemas aren't showing the I'm warning. Su- very I am surprised by that because, as you were saying, it was actually a news story. It was something that was quite a big deal. Yes, indeed, you're mm. absolutely right. <clears throat> anyway, I've got a lot of packing to do, so we need to need to finish. 
Because uh, don't overpack. You always overpack. Well, you always end up because... taking suits. You never wear them. Take a pair of shorts and a pair of flip flops. Yes, but we're also going north, and when there's an iceberg in the water, we're going know. north. Yeah, we are going north. We, we, we're not north. going. Oh no, we are. Do you get icebergs that? What, yes, how... you do. No, no. Oh, how far? Well, actually, you, you yes, you must get like because actually because because the, the Titanic here? hit one right. We're going here, and then you go up to there. And in that little bit there, you get icebergs. In fact, we're spending a day on How an iceberg. How far north do you have to be to hit an iceberg? About that far north there. No, I'm, I'm asking seriously. Well, I'm pointing it seriously on the map. Yeah, you're pointing at the wall. There's it's no map. map. You're like, you know, you're somebody in a heist movie planning sequence, but there isn't anything that you're pointing at. You're just pointing at there a wall. There is, Mark. You just got the wrong glasses on. It's just Need, here. What you didn't do was then pick up the ball and go, oh, the heist movie planning sequence. Is that in your new BBC4 series that's out on Tuesday? And I would go, yeah, that's what it's about. I, I think we've already promoted your TV series quite a lot. Oh, really? Since I cross-promote your BBC2 show all the time? I'm not, I don't have a BBC2 show. Radio 2. Oh, Radio 2. That's a radio channel as opposed to BBC2, which is a yeah, TV channel. You know what channel. I meant? You just got the T. You said a TV channel. I'm not on okay, BBC2. Is, right, is Radio 2 a BBC channel? It's not BBC2, which is what you said. It was a slip of the tongue. I meant wouldn't, so I said would. Anyway, time. Sophie writing this down. Sophie no, writes, good, it's got through. Sophie writes everything down. Perfectly fine. Uh, DVD of the week, DVD the of the lot. week, DVD of the week time. Why are you doing that? Why? DVD Wait, of the why? Week. why are DVD you doing of that? The week. There goes DVD of the week. There's a joke in here which I'm not convinced about, but anyway, I'll see if I, <laughs> see if I can sell it. Yeah, like, because that's been such an issue up until now. Well, Mark, parents everywhere may wish to stop the podcast because Monday sees the DVD release of Peter Rabbit. You know, the one with the irritating rabbit wreaks, wreaks havoc in the cordon. Ha, ah, I meant garden. <laughs> Other choices include Mary Magdalene. Very good. Unsane, New Town Utopia, The Third Murder and Filmworker. Gerard Sweeney says, I reckon years from now, Mark will re-examine Peter Rabbit and proclaim it to be... Oh, rubbish. Who am I kidding? It was awful. Ian Bradshaw. Mark will go for Film Worker because he loved it first time around and it didn't get a wide release. I'll go for It Happened Here. Ian Jones. Peter Rabbit was much better and funnier than you thought, Mark. My whole family loved it and we're serious Potter fans. There you go. And it was very successful. It was number one forever. Yeah, it was rubbish. Robert Carson. Mary Magdalene was a bold and interesting take on an old story. Really admired what they tried to do. Uh, what's our DVD of the week then? Our DVD of the week is indeed film worker because, for exactly that reason, it got a very brief theatrical release in it, but it wasn't seen by that many people. And it is a story about how Leon Vitali, who was a very talented, promising actor, worked with Stanley Kubrick, realised that he thought that Kubrick was the great genius, and decided to d- dedicate his entire life to making Stanley's visions come true. And it is a story of you know, somebody genuinely dedicating themselves to the craft of film, not always, I have to say, for an immediately obvious purpose. And I love the fact that he referred to himself as a film worker. That was what he put on his passport. That was what he did. It was He was, you know, all the way through the documentary, he talks about, that's what I am. I'm a film worker. And I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting doc. And um, the reissue, can I do that? Comfort of Strangers. All right. Well, there we go. Comfort of Strangers. Is that it? Yep, that's it. Me done. <clears throat> well, before we finish mm-hmm. and disappear yes. over the horizon, yes. Um, do you know by the word the word offing? Something yes. is I think something's offing. in the offing. Yeah, yeah. The offing is that line right across the horizon. Oh, is it? I didn't know that's what it was. The offing. That's what it is. If you're heading toward the offing, is the thing after which you fall off. Oh, okay. I never knew that. Did you know that you don't fall off? 
If you go to the horizon, the horizon just keeps going. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Amazing. There are some... F- I'm not a flat earther, you know. I've <laughs> heard you call a lot of things. But not a flat earther. Um, Ab, uh, this is from... We're going to finish with this from Abdil. Abdil Leroy. One of the joys of listening to the podcast is when it ends... Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, this is not a criticism, but yeah. applaud it, because as each episode draws to a close, the listener may wonder, is it going to end with a whimper or a bang, yeah. with music, paper rustling, or perhaps a parting insult, a real ending or a pretend ending, in French or in English, or perhaps some linguistic concoction <laughs> of no discernible origin? <laughs> then, whatever parting token the show imparts, the listener may enjoy a moment of quiet contemplation that follows a transcendental experience. So imagine my rude awakening when, having drawn to a satisfactory conclusion last week, the podcast then exploded into a cacophony of shouty promotion for other podcasts, with no connection to your own other than coming from the same arm of your fine broadcasting network. So I must ask your good selves, please, to refrain from such jarring intrusions into the sacred space of wittertainment, lest one be tempted again to pet en votre direction, which is from last week's programme, which you remember, Mark, means... Uh, Pet en votre direction. Uh, I've forgotten. Well, what what's votre direction? Your direction. Yes. So, what do I do in your general direction? F- oh, fart in your general there direction. You go. Yes. And hence, Le Petamen, the farter. The, yeah, the, the film. Yeah, the okay. short film. Yeah. For- so this, so this is uh, Abdeel sort of please beseeching us for not putting promotions for other podcasts at the end of this podcast. Well, the thing is, Abdeel. Um, you you know you have a you have a good point. On the other hand, why not take this opportunity to promote some of the other fine podcasts which aren't as good as this one, because they need all the help they can get. That's pretty much it. Also, it's what we're we're told to do. Yes, it's part of the deal. Okay, so for example, I mean, so Mark and I will come up with a, a witty and entertaining conclusion to the podcast, which I'll say, Mark, I will uh, looking forward to seeing you on the cruise. I'm just going to mm-hmm. go home. I need to pack a bag. I'm yep. going to have some. Uh, warm weather stuff, some cold weather stuff, yeah. uh, some waterproof stuff. I'll pack up uh, some cards for rainy nights uh, and that yeah. kind of stuff. And I will see you uh, on the quay. I will see you on the quay. Oh, are we going to meet on the quay, not on, on the on board? So we, are we going to walk up the gangplank together? Well, to, to applause in the orchestra playing. <laughs> and and right. and oh, I love that. Yeah. I want to be piped aboard. Okay. So we're going to go away and plan that the piping. Yeah. So thank you very much indeed. I'm bringing the bagpipes. In, you know, and we'll be back in a few weeks, though obviously the Wittsaint podcast will continue. Uh, What's in, the definition in, in of a gentleman? Someone who gets out of the shower to have uh, a pee. No. A gentleman is someone who can play the bagpipes but doesn't. All that? Okay, so this is how we conclude our podcast. But your one was more disgusting. That's true. That's, are you leaving that in? That's okay. Well, a gentleman is someone who gets out of the shower to have a pee. That is, that, uh, to tell me that doesn't work for you. That works as a definition. I haven't heard it before, but okay. it's, it's quite revolting. True. So this is how we would choose to end the podcast. However, the people who run this establishment insist that we finish with this. Get more with Five Live Podcasts. I'm John Pinar. This is Pinar's Politics. Welcome to Eye of the Storm. Greetings, Brexit casters. It's Adam Fleming in Brussels. Five Live Boxing with Costello and Bunce. Five Live's EuroLeague football podcast. The Checkered Flag podcast. Welcome to Tailenders. My name is Greg James. Welcome to the Headliners podcast. At home with Colin Murray. Hello and welcome to you, me and the Big C. Discover your next favourite podcast. Search Five Live using your podcast app. 
But what they don't know is we're going to sneak back in and <laughs> right after that little bit of promotion, subtle as it was, yeah. and say, don't forget the Wittertainment podcast is so much better than that. Yeah, and if you we don't forget, we're going to yeah. be creeping around your bins. That's true. I haven't been outside your place for a while, but and your bins, to be honest, are stinky because they haven't been washed for a while. But I quite like being in your bins. Oh, I know what's going on in your house. To be a dustbin in Shaftesbury tonight. You know that? No one knows what it's like to be a dustbin in Shaftesbury with hooligans. Bill Hicks. I had no idea. That's what was going on. That is what was going on. Anyway. Right. Thank you very much, Mark. Go cut that bit out anyway. They won't. uh, That's absolutely staying in. Oh, really? Okay. But thanks very much.